each platform has its own terminology. If you're a resident of cricket Twitter, which most of you are, because that's where I drop these podcasts, you hear terms like uh, nostalgia merchant, stat merchant. And if you don't live on Twitter and I tell you what these mean, you, you'll crack the code. It's, it, it pretty much is pretty direct what it means. And uh, we, we live in, you know, in a discourse where there are polarizing opinions and a lot of modern day uh, analysis is coming from a vantage point of stats where each ball has its own theory. There is no connectivity of setting up fields. And then there is the nostalgia people like my generation or even older who will, you know, quote Ian Chappell or Imran Khan or talk about the great escape here and there, how VVX Lakshman engineered the greatest heist in Kolkata. And when we discuss a great like Lakshman, we can hear something that you'll, you know, if you believe in that, it'll make you a little bit uncomfortable. Oh, what kind of attacks did he face or vice versa? And today's attacks are more uh, unforgiving and they're just bowling to lines where there's nowhere to go. So there's a lot unpacked there. And by today's conversation, I hope to accomplish uh, no, no answers to this because this is an ongoing narrative debate, which should go on because narratives are not bad, I maintain, unless it gets personal. So there are two viewpoints, which we'll try to address stats, uh, lens to view the game and also some of the old-fashioned way of viewing the game. Not necessarily nostalgia. I don't like the term nostalgic merchant, but, you know, I didn't coin it. I'm okay because I sometimes reside under it. And helping me unpack are like a bunch of return guests who have added a lot of value to this podcast. So let me welcome Aftab Khanna, Vijay Arumugam, and uh, Nakul Pandey. And this should be, like Ravi Shastri say, a firecracker of a discussion. Without raising our voices, we'll, you know, we'll, I think, get on with business. Welcome, everyone, to Cricket with an Accent. Yeah, no introduction needed. If you have listened to my, you know, 70, 80 episodes, you know, all these guys have been becoming frequent voices, which is third time, Aftab's fourth time, and Nakul's third time. And uh, you should follow them on Cricket Twitter if you are not, because, you know, whatever comes out of the account is you know, a lot of great food for thought. So let's get into the groove of things. So I'll bring Nakul first. So just give an opening line when you hear stats versus nostalgia. Which part of the fence do you sit in? And, uh, you know, how do you tackle this issue? You know, and we'll probably spend close to two hours doing it, but uh, floor is yours. Give an opening statement on stats versus nostalgic way of looking at cricket. Whenever cricket gets reduced to these these versus questions, um, and this goes to, you know, player versus player or approach versus, um, you know, statistical approach versus a sort of qualitative looking at it. I test uh, my my instant reaction always is to sort of question the validity of that dichotomy <laughs> whether or and to question whether the two are mutually exclusive and I think in this case that that is that that is that is the case I mean I I wouldn't I'm not a particularly nostalgic uh I'm not a particularly nostalgic person but I'm also very much aware of the and and I do like looking at uh, cricket numerically as much as I can uh, I'm certainly f- fluentish in cricket stats if not in actual stats I have no mathematical background um but I, I think the 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 marriage of the two uh, the marriage of eye test and stats uh is, is vital uh and and passing it through uh your your cricketing knowledge and any good analyst will will tell you this they'll, they'll always tell you that you need an approach of the the hard skills and the soft skills to really appreciate it properly and as you said at the start this is very much an evolving uh conversation it's always going to be we're always going to be struggling to to find that to find that balance um on on i would tend to go more towards the uh the observable and the falsifiable rather than um sort of folk memory 
um, and going against going off sort of one person's recollection, particularly if you go too far back, uh, if you go even really back into the early 90s and beyond, uh, you don't have the, the data to interrogate or in some cases you don't even you don't have to go that back that far before you don't even have the footage to uh to interrogate so you're going off scorecards you're going off match reports you're going off memory which is wonderful and and makes for great storytelling but is not always particularly uh particularly um reliable i'll give you an an example uh when bowlers started when no balls started getting checked all the time in in, in modern day cricket you'd hear bowlers of a bygone age or, or or pundits talking about, oh, this great bowler never bowled no balls, this great bowler never bowled no balls, and then this kind of becomes accepted fact until someone actually goes and checks and turns out, you know, Ian Botham bowled quite a lot of no balls. Um, Bob Willis bowled a ridiculous number of no balls. Um, I don't think Bob Willis ever claimed to not bowl uh, no balls, but, uh, or, you know, Curtly Ambrose or whoever it might be um, bowled, bold nobles and bold nobles at about the rate that most other people uh did uh, we're in a we're in a curious period now where thanks to the work of people like crickviz and and, and crickmetric and other uh and other data analysts um taking and dan weston another one i, I would i would say uh, taking a deeper look beyond just the headline numbers that you see on somebody's stats guru or, or crick info profile uh, we have the opportunity to start asking and getting answers to to perhaps more interesting questions, but we've only got it for the last fifteen years or so of of, of test cricket in particular, and and I guess one day and guess other forms of cricket as well. So we're in a we're in a strange situation where recency bias can become very um, can become very even harder to avoid just because of the availability of data. Um, but I'm i'm always trying to to find some sort of um some sort of marriage between the between the eye test whether whether you want to call that nostalgia or not i guess if you're looking at um but certainly a historical perspective and the and the and the, the numbers that are sort of directly observable and measurable i think well said historical is probably a better way but again you know like i said i didn't coin the term and there's a nostalgic you know, merchant group that exists, or at least is labeled. So let me bring in Vijay. I think you left a lot of food for thought, Nakul. And I think, Vijay, you want to weigh in uh, from where Nakul left off, how you see this uh, discourse? And uh, do you have a pr- problem with the word nostalgia merchant? Uh, thanks, Akib, first of all, uh, for having invited me again. Uh, so for viewers, I'm Vijay Aramugam from Sydney. So, Sakib, I think uh, Nakul, uh, Nakul covered a fair bit of it. So let me try to unravel the whole thing or try to unwrap the whole thing in my own way in terms of what I think uh, between data, nostalgia, observation versus, you know, it's data versus evidence, right? Data and evidence versus what we observe. So first of all, cricket is a, a slightly unusual sport, right? In terms of the rules and regulations. A, it's episodic. It's played over a longer period and is in a way an individual sport played within a team construct. So therefore, the, the way to measure the cricket events in terms of statistics is a little bit different. And it's still, as Nakul rightly said, it's still an evolving thing. And the historical data points aren't available for a lot of factors to arrive, arrive at you know, informed surmises. Of course, I mean, statistics are very important and they should be used very diligently to challenge the narratives and conjectures. Plus, stats should be used to complement the existing understanding of the game, which we all think we know, right? 
So for example, let me give an example, right, to, to see where I'm coming from, to, to tell you where I'm coming from. If I were to choose an all-time Australian 11, um, I would always go for Don Talon as the wicketkeeper, uh, which I've done a few times on Twitter as well as elsewhere online 10, 15 years ago. Hey, Don Bradman has rated him as the greatest wicketkeeper the world has ever seen. But if you have read Jack Fingleton's book, um, I think it's called Brightly Fades the Dawn, uh, about the 1948 tour, he clearly talks about Talon as someone whose speed was immense as a keeper while he missed a number of chances. And as Nakul said, if you want to break it down, Talon took 12 catches in four test matches in that uh, 1948 Ashes in England, Bradman's last tour, the Invincibles. But uh, he has also had some very average days, especially uh, the third third test at Old Trafford, day one. Day one, Dennis Compton scored 100. And uh, uh, according to the eyewitnesses, he had a very average day. And also, if you look at statistically, he has got the worst buys per 100 balls ratio of any Australian keeper to play in 10 test matches or more. Now, someone like me has always picked Talon as my keeper in my all-time 11 ahead of you know, Healy, Gilchrist, or Birdfield, et cetera, et cetera. Does, does, you know, do these statistics, stats mean those keepers were better than uh, talent? Not necessarily, right? I think this is where we have problems with cricket statistics. There's no defined standards of measuring stats. How do we clock buys? You know, not just buys, right? Is it down the leg side, three inches to the left, three feet above the head of the keeper? How many of those buys were actual keepers false who is the arbiter of you know what's keepers fault versus what's a bowler's fault or it could be an umpire's fault in terms of not giving a wide plus as i talked about and as nakul rightly pointed up we don't have a large sample size for cricket uh, for different events to make a proper comparison the ball by ball data is i think available only from 1999 uh, that's for even for something very basic like number of runs and number of wickets, a number of balls faced by uh, each bowler or number of runs scored by a particular batsman against a particular bowler in a test match. Forget wicket keeping, which is a lot harder to measure given the number of variables we've got. So to me, most of these informed conversations, what we're talking about in cricket, has to, you know, have to be dependent on data. Of course, with context and some of the factors brought in. To give another example, right, it's easy to say, Herbert Sutcliffe, the great Yorkshire and English opening batsman, averaged 60 plus. And therefore, he has to be better than Sir Jack Hobbs, who averaged 56 plus. Now, it's not that easy. 60 is greater than 56. Numbers don't reveal in that way, right? So it, it requires a fair, fair amount of research, analysis, and multiple points of view for us to come to a conclusion. So if I if I try to look at it in a summary, I'm still not getting into a summary. Like it's it's like it's one thing to have data, but it's another thing to sift through it, analyze it, find patterns, connect the dots, and remove the bad data. Now, data without context sometimes can be worse. Plus, one has to read a fair amount of the sports history to be able to decipher the various sporting patterns, which can be and should be later on verified by available data. The reason why I'm bringing it, because I deal with data every day at work. So at corporate conglomerates, we use data, but we use two words, so what? So the so what has to become part of the cricket data lexicon. I mean, as Nakul said, it could be CrickWiz and other data providers. This is how data gets reviewed and filtered at corporate workplaces. Cricket data has to get there to move to the next level. 
that means we need standard guidelines on how to do peer reviews. I mean, peer reviews mean who does it using what protocol and how it can be countered, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's where I stand in terms of uh, you know, cricket data. So if I summarize for this, because it's a broader question, right? Data is very important. It tells a lot of things. It also doesn't tell a lot of other things. Plus the sample sizes can be a bit tiny, which doesn't allow one to make informed conclusions. Overall, we need to improve on focusing the construct around data to make it better and structured so that it starts to add real value to cricket conversations. At the same time, you use the word nostalgia merchant, right? Those who scoff at data saying, oh, everything was great in my day, you know, Shane was better than Rhodes, which is Ian Chappell, my favorite commentator, they should be called out as nostalgia merchants or even dinosaurs, Well, which I'm sometimes accused of, although I'd like to believe I'm not one because most of my conversations, most of my talking points have data as a background. Of course, I try to add context situation uh, as well as the summary uh, and the various scenarios into it. So that's my starting pitch, uh, Sakib. It's quite a pitch. So let me bring Aftab in. I have a lot of questions listening to both you and Nakul, and I'm sure Aftab is going to plant some ideas too. So Aftab, after listening to these two gentlemen, has your opening pitch changed? Is there more food for thought? I know you're quick on your feet, but you know what are you going to say? And where do you sit? You don't have to take a stand, but what are you closer to? Like stats, or you are closer to the historical way of viewing the game, where someone says stats may not tell the full story. I think like a lot of other things, I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, but I think <clears throat> both Nakul and Vijay give good food for thought. I'll make three quick points. I think one, uh, like a lot of other things, you know, cricket watching has changed over the last, certainly the last 10 to 15 years. If I look back to the 1990s, when, when I started watching a lot of cricket on television, stats in cricket was basically the exclusive domain of the broadcaster. The only stats you knew was what the broadcaster showed you on television or maybe you know if you had the wisdom almanac you know not everybody had access to it uh, it was difficult to get hold of um, or you know if the sports star had published certain stats at a point of time about someone you were reading through those right but you had very very limited access to stats and so a lot of your judgment and understanding was very perception based right the nostalgia merchant narrative as as Vijay talks about and things that have been passed on from generation to generation right oh Gavaskar was like this Vishwan was like this and things like those and it's a very good thing in my opinion that data has been democratized um, over the last 10 to 15 years with <clears throat> click info coming in the power of web social media click whiz right now a lot of people have their own databases where they can go and crunch numbers right people like simple people like you and me can go to stats guru and pull out a lot of very interesting data, uh, uh, not to a great degree of depth, but reasonably good quality of data to start at least testing some of those narratives. Um, so to me, I think that's a very good thing that's happened. I think it's challenged a lot of uh, those narrative fallacies uh, that have existed for a very long period of time. Um, Nakul gave the example of Ian Botham and Bob Willis with no balls. And I think because nobody was watching so much on television, it, nobody noticed, right? Um, the the second point I would uh, make is that we are not at that stage, you know, if we think of, a, and Vijay would relate to this term, us consultants love using it. If, if you look at the capability maturity lifecycle, we are still at a very early stage of the use of data to provide insights into uh, stories around cricket building. 
and we are still a little bit far away from where you know you could say okay we have a reasonable set of standards and standards in cricket to measure different periods of time by so i'll give just to add on an example right the example which i gave of uh, you know measuring a wicket keeper by the number of byes he conceded unless you layer on to that a data point that says on that particular day at old trafford here was a degree of swing that the ball was enjoying right then that gives you two data points together to arrive at some kind of a so what to say oh the numbers of byes is high but the degree of swing was also massive so probably it was a very a day with a lot of you know swinging condition the ball's kind of moving all over the place so yes the maybe keeper the keeper missed a few things right but if the degree of swing is much lower then it's a nice sunny batting day in english conditions and why is the keeper missing so many balls right so again we don't have that those set of data points maybe 100 years later it'll be a different conversation because so much data would have been collected at least for the ball by ball tracking metrics machine learning algorithms would have thrown out a reasonable set of standards and they would have you know um uh, to some extent made measurement consistent uh, over a period of time but we are not there yet right and so we have to test sort of every argument with a little bit of a pinch of pinch of salt um and to me i think that and that's the third point right this this kind of space that we are in right now where you have a mixture of part narrative part data but both kind of jostling for space with each other i think it to me it's the richness of cricket discussion right i wouldn't want all of us to be bots and um just looking at specific data points and saying oh you know this kind of proves the case i mean in cricket you never really prove the case right every fan has his own interpretation every cricket fan has his own 11 um and every fan has his own set of arguments and i think that leads to debate it adds to the richness of discussion i think it provokes a bigger wider discussion um and today it provokes it on much bigger wider platforms than it used to do today so to me that's a that's a it's it's a net positive outcome we live in a messy state right now it's a little bit chaotic um but but i think it's a good state to be in because we are challenging and testing assumptions every day i think well said and i think you all in a way kind of complemented the conversation not necessarily disagreeing but you know giving different viewpoints and um so sakib uh, this, this is vijay i'd like to ask one thing to aftab because he raised a point about the availability of database because Karthik, who's a lead cynic on Twitter, has been asking me and he's been asking around for access to some of these databases at an affordable price. But I'm told you have to pay thousand pounds or dollars to have access to something like a Crickwiz database. Is that true, or are there cheaper alternatives available for fans to buy it and then play with it? Uh, just, just, just on that, by the way, uh, Aftab, I think the it is where well, you say data is more democratized. That's partially true. but we're in a state now where the the people with these databases who are actually doing the ball tracking which means that you have that data size that's all proprietary it's being sold to broadcasters it's being sold to teams and it's very difficult for uh unless you are working for an organization that's got a subscription to actually get access to the raw data and do some of those checks that you were talking about yeah. no I, i agree and when i said data being democratized i'm comparing it to where we were 50, 20 years ago when all the only data you had was what got flashed on the television screen versus where today somebody can at least go to a stats guru put a filter and see you know a, a, a performance metrics over a certain period of time right 
30, 40, 50 years later, hopefully we'll be in a situation where ball by ball tracking would be so easily accessible that maybe if you paid like a 10, $15 subscription per month, you would get all of that data. We are not there yet. So I agree. That's why I said from a capability maturity perspective, we are in the very early stages, right? Um, where there is this new set of data that's available, but it's so prized that people are holding on to it. It's not going to be easily available for a fair amount of time. Vijay, does this answer your question? Should I move forward or you have? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think Nakul has answered the point, right? It's proprietary and it's quite expensive. Uh, it's not easy right now for the individuals to buy it. And I think the other day someone said 300K or 300K pounds, if I'm not, not Australian dollars. That's a fair amount of money to, uh, you know. And, and, and the reason why it's proprietary is because in today's, you know, clutter of cricketing coverage, this is the point of differentiation, right? Amonga writing about control is why you would probably go and read his piece over maybe a purely narrative-based piece, right? Or somebody like, uh, you know, uh, Akedi, uh, you know, using a $1,000 database to pull out those insights is probably why people are reading what he's reading. It's a point of differentiation today. Whether it would remain that or not 20, 30 years later, we don't know. I hope it doesn't because I am all for, you know, over a period of time, these kind of things becoming more and more easy for the simple fans to access. So Afsar, let me ask you this then. Again, you kind of read my mind. I was going to quote Monga as my next part because he's an absolute you know, beast of a writer. He makes you wonder what the game is telling you. Is Did I watch the same match? But then you said like the false data and you know the stuff that he only has access to through CrickInfo you know, makes the article you know, stand out compared to others. So other practitioners who have access to this it's pretty given that they have an advantage compared to say a Nakul Pandey or someone, you know, who has their own gorilla cricket, they have to rely on data. They can borrow data, but they don't have access. So people who have access after, do you think they have an advantage that's there? Does that automatically make them the destination point to, okay, I want, I missed second day's play. Let me go check out what he said. Or you think uh, there'll be a point when everybody will have access and then you'll still have data supported by personal opinion slash narrative present you know the final day's play because right now it's pretty much you know this only streaming channel everything else is still blockbuster you can go rent dvds but if you want you know movie on your phone crick info is the only place to go does it make sense i mean is it a legit way of uh, asking a question it is and kind of ties but ties back to my point right that these are sort of evolutionary cycles of any sort of product that's that's relatively newer in the market and the people who own the product are, are using it to to drive differentiation in these initial stages it also depends on what kind of a cricket viewer or a consumer you are right so i mean if if you're you know people like all of us on this podcast right who want to kind of go who want to understand the why of and not just the what you would probably yes go to a cricket for and try and you know read a manga or you probably read you know what a kd is writing you may may or may not agree with it right but it's giving you, you are probing for hypotheses around the why if you're not then you're probably just watching that 15 minute news capsule to catch up on you know the day's uh, update and and the day's report is 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 good for you right i mean i'll give an example uh, i don't know if it's a perfect analogy or not right but i have this pet peeve that Cricket boards around the world are, are sitting on these hours and hours of archival footage and they treat it as like some kind of a gold mine. They do a horrible job of pulling it out or even monetizing it. But if you were put if you were to put it out there and say, you know, we have a five dollar per month subscription, go and watch as many archive videos as you want, right? People would lap it up, right? Instead, what's happened is you have folks like Rob Linder who have created these, you know, semi-archival uh, uh, repositories on their own, almost in a guerrilla fashion. And and it is 
attracting an audience and i foresee something like this happening you know to to data over the next 10 to 15 years where there will be people you know who will start making some of these investments and maybe the cost will come down and you'll kind of have this you know again an independent sort of set of data stream coming in um where people you know folks who are not able to access it as easily today will be able to access it and then really you know the differentiator is the quality of insight you provide right today the differentiator is access where you want to go with the product is is the quality of insight that you're providing with that data the data becomes almost commoditized everybody should have access to it right um because it's not written for that's recording uh ball by ball the game is happening right um but it'll take time to get there right i'm not saying just open up all your data feeds today and give access to everybody but i think it'll take time to get there and eventually as i said the thing that will distinguish people or differentiate people is what's what do you do with that data the so what that we just said right i mean you have publicly available data today about companies that are listed on the stock exchange it was not there 25 30 years ago maybe longer right everybody has access to it what distinguishes a good interpreter from a bad one is what do you do with it? What kind of insight do you bring to it? How are you reading it, right? I think ultimately we'll get there. It'll take time. No, I think very well said because it also happens in tennis. You all know that I, you know, I'm more of a tennis fan and uh, same with ATP. They are seen and ITF seen as a bad, bad gatekeepers because with Twitter and, you know, like modern day blogger turned analyst, there's a lot of knowledge that's coming outside the establishment and every sport has this, you know, this dilemma. Uh, the man or woman behind the microphone who's coming from a big corporation is not really giving the insights you need. And then, you know, hobbyists like us, more knowledgeable ones than me who host podcasts or do blogs, there is like good food for conversation on a Twitter space. Then you can say, fine, from Shane Moan or John McEnroe. And this does come because they're sitting on, you know, the Hawkeye data or, you know, the Crick Info, Crick Wiz data, you know, actually not Crick Wiz, leave them out, but Crick Info data. And then uh, it's giving them the edge, but they're also not using it to the best of, I think, uh, their, you know, their advantage, because I think there is still like old feudal landlord system here, because we own the data, it's our stuff, it's like a monopoly, you always hear someone getting blocked by like ATP tennis or Crick Info, and then, you know, Twitter quicks up a storm and they unblock an account who was only doing a service by providing, you know, golden footage, which like Aftab rightfully said, they should be doing. So let me, you know, let me take a step back. And uh, this is an argument that's been dismissed many times, but I want Vijay, Nakul and Aftab to look at it. Again, the nostalgic argument was when this thing started like 10, 11 years ago, before even Twitter, when, when I was not active, there was a discourse, hey, without helmet, you know, you add five runs or take five runs off because facing Lily or Thomo without a helmet took, you know, courage. And I have one of my friends who was on the podcast, I won't name him, but he even said if there were no helmet, Saurav Ganguly wouldn't even be a test cricketer. Again, there are a lot of extreme opinions about like, you know, gut and glory. So Vijay, I mean, let me put you on the podium first. Uh, does not having helmet, you know, in that era when you were playing some of the fastest bowling, you know, does that add to the batting technique? That's something, you know, besides the folklore, something the stats rightfully or wrongfully do not capture. I mean, what's your view on that? Is this something, a dismissive argument from the past, or you think that still holds water for how cricket was played, say, in the pre-helmet era? So it's a great question, uh, Sakib. I mean, I'd like to start off on a lighter vein in terms of what Tony Gregg's wife said. Uh, she said something like, uh, it took men so many years to wear the helmet while they were wearing the, I mean, to protect the head while they were protecting their testicles for a very, very long time, right? This is an argument that she put forward saying, men are men, right? That's on a lighter vein. So coming back to your point, yes, absolutely, right? Um, 
so playing without a helmet means the necessity of not having the protection or the second line of defense or the first line of defense forced a lot of batsmen to watch the ball. And Sunil Gavaskar has talked a lot about it, right? You're forced to watch the ball. You're forced to duck and sway properly. Either you duck or you play the hook, you play the shot. There's no half measures, right? And also, statistically, people like Michael Atherton and others have said, I don't know whether there is quick quiz evidence to say, the batsmen have started to get hit a lot after they start to wear a helmet. Therefore, it kind of tells that the batsmen are closing their eyes or not watching it. So it's a bit like the DRS and uh, pre-DRS debate, right? Wearing a helmet has absolutely helped batsmen to feel more comfortable. Uh, they could get on the front foot. They could do a few things which they would do. At the same time, they've, it has kind of made them a bit lazy in terms of watching the ball till the last moment because the fear factor is gone, right? You know, Nari contractor, and we we know so many instances, right? Of you know how helmets have literally killed people. I mean, Phil Hughes happened uh, in 2014, which was completely different. To to your point, say someone like Vivian Richards, right? So this is where Vivian Richards, arguably the greatest batsman or arguably the most destructive batsman we have seen in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And he never wore a helmet at a test match. But someone like Richie Richardson, when his reflexes started to slow down, he wore that helmet uh, in the 1995 home series against Australia, which they lost, right? So some batsmen wear it and not. Now, the, I mean, I want to give a modern narrative, right? Because rugby is one sport where uh, they've really, really talked about the concussion and how it has become so important uh, for younger people to be protected. And rugby's rules around concussion has been pretty much piggybacked by cricket to come up with the concussion substitute, with, which happened with Steve Smith and Manus Labishin at Lords uh, in 2019. The reason I'm bringing this topic up is somehow in cricketing circles, not wearing a helmet is seen as... Uh, some kind of a bravado thing, right? Some kind of, you know, you're a proper alpha male, right? You know, that's how Ian Chappell played, that's how Vivian Richards played, that's how Clive Lloyd played. So somehow this macho narrative that not wearing a helmet gives you that extra bit of uh, uh, extra bit of oomph is something I just want to uh, blow it away, right? Because that cannot be accepted in the modern ways of looking at it. But even astute observers like Michael Atherton are arguing saying that not wearing a helmet has given a sorry wearing a helmet has given a, a bigger advantage to the Sachin Tendulkar and Brian Laras and and, uh, and Graham Gooches of this world, right? So if you ask me, yes, the helmet has given some advantages to the batsman in terms of coming to the front foot and flying. At the same time, uh, it has kind of diluted the technique and it has made the batsman a little bit dependent on that protection rather than the instincts, right? At the same time, if I apply the modern rules around safety and regulation, I would say wearing a helmet is an absolute must. Anyone who talks about not wearing a helmet uh, was bravado. In terms of five runs average, four runs average, I think it all evens out, right? Like, for example, on a helmet wasn't that useful on a sticky dog or a wet wicket or drying wicket because the ball would, would not bounce, but it would just do all kinds of things. Then the technique becomes very, very hard to play. And also... It all depends on the type of bowlers you face. When did you have those, you know, headhunting bowlers? A Roy Gilchrist, if you had faced a Roy Gilchrist with a helmet, would have been a much more better proposition. 1963 Lords, we talk about Colin Cowdery and the, the Brave Act or the way Ted Dexter played those shots against Hall and Griffith. Yeah, their helmet could have been helpful. But was helmet uh, a very useful option against maybe Richard Hadley? Yeah, but even Richard Hadley was 
a bit of a headhunter at the start of his career, right? So again, there is no definitive answer. But if I look at cricket as an evolution from three-day test matches to uncovered wickets to helmeted, uh, there is a distinction. But I wouldn't say that just because they didn't wear a helmet in the 70s, they were better batsmen because there were some rubbish test matches played out as well. So that's the way I would like to look at it, uh, Sakib, as an overall thing. Again, uh, Nakul, you want to say something to this? Um, I mean, have you listened to this argument? I mean, are, are you dismissive of this? Or it is what it was? You can't, you know, this kind of an argument can't creep into stats that, you know, I'm going to give this guy two more runs or three more runs, you know, because he was facing some of the most ferocious bowling. And the other thing, you know, that uh, these arguments, historical perspective creeps in is uh, they were like, you know, uncovered pitches. I don't know, like, when is the last uncovered pitch? But, you know, why get facts, uh, you know, get in the way when, you know, you can uh, support like a bravado argument. So what's your take on this? If you have ever been part of a discussion where helmets and pitches have been brought as a, as a way to glorify the yesteryears. Uh, so much of this just, it's just not, you can't even seriously make a hypothesis because there's no way of testing it. Um, so it becomes a very, it becomes very subjective uh, and uh, people start talking about the you know the different mechanics of, of batting so maybe you're more in the front foot which makes it easier to play certain shots but then you're maybe you can't, you can't get out of the way easily as easily but obviously wearing a helmet the impact so to speak of any head impact is significantly lower it is now something that is something that can be that can happen and is not is not so is not so dramatic the consequences are not so severe uh, uh when you are wearing helmets i growing up when i did so i'm so i'm i'm 30 years old i grew up in a in in a time helmets were mandatory for for kids playing playing cricket um at any organized level uh with a hard ball indoor nets outdoor net, outdoor nets match practice whatever so i've just i've just grown up wearing a helmet um and always saw it on tv you occasionally you don't ever really see uh now you occasionally see batters taking off the helmet for a spinner uh, in England, English batters aren't allowed to do that uh, for by ECB regulations. And I have studied um, as part of a, a master's that I've been doing. I had some training from the Concussion Legacy Foundation about how to, as a broadcaster and as a media professional, talk about brain impacts, uh, brain injuries, and, and concussions. And it was something I was i didn't really have a lot of patience for the for the macho as, as vijay very eloquently described argument before and i have even less for it now knowing uh the the severity of sub-concussive blows so blows to the head that don't cause an observable concussion uh knowing what we know about delayed concussions uh which and if you and the potentially fatal consequences of getting a second concussion while you're already uh, suffering from the first concussion the the long-term impacts on 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 brains uh so if you're if you're an nfl fan or a, or maybe less of a boxing fan but particularly an nfl fan you'll be very familiar with the with the term cte chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh which is long-term brain tissue damage from from repeated head impacts um it, it is vijay's absolutely right it's it's far too serious for uh to not wear the, the headgear but as far as whether it's made batters more likely to get hit or not or whether you have to weight batting averages in some way i i don't know how you can 
there's just too much noise to make any kind of sensible weighting. People have tried things like this before, where you divide uh, batting averages or bowling averages and plot different events and developments in the game over time and try and add a weighting, some more scientific methods than others. But it, there's always you're always making an assumption at some point down the line when you're when you're adding these weightings. I just don't think it's um, I just don't think it's very helpful, frankly. And you're never going to get who's the use case you you need to look at a large subset of batters who transitioned from not wearing helmets to wearing helmets but then you need every other data point to also be clean which it isn't because richie richardson wears helmets at the towards the latter part of his career a batter of a of a later generation or a few years later than him i'm trying to think of an example of someone who might have come through in the 80s I don't know. Maybe Graham Hick would be an example, um, or, or or someone like that, or um, or someone of that ilk. Someone who started playing in the late eighties and and but went through most of their cricket in the nineties and beyond. Maybe Michael Atherton. I don't know if he ever uh, batted without a helmet or not against against fast bowlers uh, at lower levels. Certainly, all the footage of him uh, at Test level that we were aware of is of him wearing helmets. So I just don't think there is a. I don't think that there is a useful point of comparison that i uh, so I, i'm gonna have to plead sort of data not applicable i can't answer the question as far as far as that but as in terms of the I mean, god knows there's there's too far too many macho um arguments around around brain injuries uh that are born simply of ignorance uh and at, at all levels um i think that the cricket has done a lot partially uh catalyzed by the horrible events that happened to philip hughes uh work that was done by cricket australia uh who have led crickets um increased seriousness when it comes to brain injuries and, and and concussions their protocols informed the current icc protocols i think even more so than rugby's um which is still um which is still kind of catching up with um with um with the seriousness of it doing a better sport than job than, other, than some other sports but but still catching up um but even so, I think we we see, for example, um, Vijay mentioned Stephen Smith, who was allowed to bat on or come back out. Uh, Darren Bravo, who who was the second uh, batter to to be subbed out of a game for concussion, batted on the next day. Uh, that same that same year in the World Cup, Hashmatullah Shahidi got smashed in the head uh, by I think it was Jofra Archer, uh, and, and batted on and said at the end that he, um, despite showing visible signs of of being of being concussed and said at the end that he he wanted to make his mother proud uh when any responsible medical um officer should have um should have pulled him out of the game uh, this is probably not the time or place for my for my pitch for independent medical professionals to be making these concussion assessments but but that's 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 a that's, a, that's a, you know I'll I'll happily make that pitch in a more appropriate forum um but but in terms of the the question about whether you can weight batting averages or bowling averages or whatever by um by helmet and not helmet i just think it's far too messy to to even consider it worth trying true it's more like so, a barstool conversation yeah go ahead vijay i know you have so sakib i just want to add one thing to nakul's point right <clears throat> so we kind of agree both of us agree in terms of the concussion and the seriousness and looks like nakul has <clears throat> done a professional study in terms of that I'd like to bring one example about how the macho thing plays out. It's not helmets, it's slightly different. 
2011 oval test uh, india versus england <clears throat> so gautam gambhir tried to take a catch in the outfield <clears throat> and he kind of was pedaling back and he fell on the grass so he kind of fell flat on his back which means his head got hit on the on the the outfield grass and uh, he wasn't all right then he walked off the field and he and both them you know a quintessentially macho person he was on commentary for sky and i was watching from here in australia on fox so i think he pretty much said both them he got hit on the grass what's a big deal and both them didn't stop with that because gautam gambhir apparently had some blurred vision and he couldn't see he couldn't even touch the remote i mean there were a lot of reports right so basically uh, gambhir didn't come back uh, to the field at all and india was losing badly in that series so i think ravindra jadeja was the one he wasn't a, a, a concussed sub back then we didn't have the rules he just came in as a substitute and ian botham kept on going even the next day by saying that you know literally called gautam gambhir a coward who ran away from the field for not being able to take a blow on the grass now again i'm not saying ian botham was uh, malicious in saying that but that's a lot of former players whether it's ian chapel dennis lilly malcolm marshall viv richards or ian botham they all felt that's the way the game has to be played but and as nakul rightly pointed out i wouldn't understand some of the technical terms he used they they, they went way over my head this in a concussion and in a in a concussion that happens later so just to have a fall on the ground and have an impact which gautam gambhir had and which he had to return home it's a very serious medical issue and rugby has done a lot i mean ever since a, a young 14 year old boy who died in england they've taken a lot of series of steps uh, from a collision perspective as he said nfl and there's a lot of liability around it and cricket is kind of trying to piggy back and therefore as some of this talk that you know everything was great when we played and we got a hit one for the team and one for the nation i think those conversations shouldn't happen in 2021 just because you know some of the men who play cricket uh, you know felt they played it like that just like to add to that point No, well, fair enough. So, Aftab, again, uh, another question to you to make the conversation go forward. You can weigh on, you know, the helmet issue, but the other issue that uh, I don't think it's more like a historical issue, but uh, a lot of times I've heard ability to play the new ball or the importance of number three. Now, do statistics, in your view, capture that? Say, if you're comparing a number three's average to a number four, is there enough sophisticated data? Like, and first of all, do you believe playing a new ball or the semi-new ball is more of a skill? so that's again a narrative question that doesn't really die and you know we've heard this through the lens of dravid now pujara and how the tendulkars and the kohlis you know in test cricket they bat four but in odi cricket they bat at the top of the order so and then we'll get to you know the batting era i think i'm just setting up the stage because you know we all have been part of these uh, these uh, questions and these discussions some of them are like old maybe for you guys may have been dismissed ah this like why is he even bringing it up but again maybe the listener wants to get a view so your floor is yours so you want to talk about the helmets and then talk about uh the top order and the middle order and how the stats weigh weigh these and what's your thought thought process when you hear these arguments yeah i mean i think on helmets i'll just make one simple point and move on um nobody complains about bulletproof vests and seat belts today right i mean you don't hear people talking oh in our time there were no seat belts and look how much we were and people are cowards for wearing seat belts or or you know policemen or army men wearing bulletproof vests today i think i think to me it's like as simple as that you have safety devices available you use them human life is more more important no sport wants to see any loss of human life or injury right that that to me is the basic principle and i'll move on um because i don't think that's 
it's it's a debate you know really kind of worth worth carrying on now um but uh, on on your other question my perception is this whole thing around number 3 uh, i think it's uh, it, it, it's a little bit centered um, around india and and our our sort of thinking of of a number 3 and it's probably been anchored a little bit by by dravid over the last sort of 20 years or so because prior to that i don't remember at least in the 90s a lot of discussion happening around oh, who is number 3 and what should a number 3 really be like and i don't know if it's really a debate in some of the other you know cricketing countries i mean i would love to hear vijay and and, and nakul's perspective from england and australia right ponting was a number 3 and he's nowhere uh, you know close to being the kind of number 3 that we in india have sort of started idolizing over the last 20 years that you know your number 3 has to be a wall who 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 should be literally a pseudo opener and can you know play in the new ball i think it's partly because india were never good playing overseas um we never had a settled opening pair and so all our eyes were like you know our third opener is basically the guy who bats in number 3 so he should be very good against the new ball should be able to play on on bouncy pitches right and dravid being dravid sort of this cult built around him um and then pujara kind of came who's batting in the same mold and now as i said for the last 20 years we are kind of talking pretty much the same language and i don't think there is a, a reasonably good set of statistics available um to to measure um a number 3 batsman perhaps maybe you know the only sort of proxy you could use um is to is to say okay you know it different sort of periods of time and different people batted in like in specific games you know what were the conditions like i don't know if we have conditions around you know in england it's easy to see the degree of swing i don't know how you do that in australia probably another proxy could be the depth of um, fast bowling attacks and we can speak about it a little bit later right but how that's changed um over the last 20 30 years across different teams um and so you know it's it's i think it's 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 a bigger obsession in india around that specific batting position than in um than in some of the other countries that's my personal opinion i think in white ball cricket it doesn't matter because you're playing for a finite amount of time you know the tempo of the game is a little bit different batsmen are willing to take more risks but in test cricket where you you're generally not starting off or you're starting off with a risk averse approach um if you do not have a good set of opening batsmen and you're always kind of chasing up a score as india used to do you know then you'll always look at every batting position um with a with a razor's eye uh, and and to some extent you know you're you'll start obsessing about certain positions where maybe somebody is doing a little bit better than than the others I think yeah, uh, Vijay, you want to weigh on the same, and then maybe sure. you can kick off the conversation. Where do you see? And let me add a other thing, uh, other a- aspect to this. Uh, what I tried to ask after maybe I failed here is, do you think uh, he's right? The fascination with Dravid, and we built this conversation around him because you know after Gavaskar, we didn't have good openers, and we always would find uh, found wanting with the next guy padded up really coming in the first few overs. But uh, when you look at the statistical way of lo- looking batting averages this is what i wanted to ask after i apologize do you think the top 3 just have a tougher task to do so again not saying give them 2 3 runs extra but you think that's just that's why it's called a top order and that's something stats really right now don't capture it's just like one linear way of capturing averages it doesn't matter if you're facing a fresh cummins or not or or is that even a merit of a question yeah i mean i i can see it as being a 
an attractive argument to begin with, but I would pause because if you look at Asian batsmen, I would argue that playing a new ball, a red new ball, in when you're playing at home, probably is a better deal than playing uh, a slightly older ball when the spinners are operating because it's difficult to score runs, right? So I'm pausing because my sense is that if you go a little bit deeper into, if we had good data and if we, we you know, were able to analyze it, we might discover that it's a wash, right? The degree of difficulty you have when playing in Australia or England, probably if, if you're lucky enough to get the same opportunities when you're playing in India, it becomes a bit of a wash because with the harder uh, red SG ball, it's probably easier to score runs in in the in, in you know in the early early parts of the innings if you're willing to do that, uh, compared to when it becomes a little bit softer and it's difficult to work around. So I'm I'll I'll pause a little bit before jumping to the conclusion and saying oh an Indian top three maybe deserves a two or three extra run credit in averages when you compare them to a four or a five. So Sakib, uh, you want to go now? Yeah, please go ahead. Okay, so Sakib, uh, I agree with Aftab on a lot of things, but as he rightly said, I'll try to give an Australian perspective here. So in Australia, the way cricket has been played in the last, say, 30, 40 years is the younger players, right, a Ponting or a Blewett or a, a Dean Jones or a Steve Waugh, when they get introduced to, to batting, they usually start at number five or six because the expectation is the top four is usually... Uh, handled by the more experienced players, the Borders and the Boons, and oh, even David Boone started, right? Usually, younger players are given the, the freedom to start at number five or six, and they gain experience. Uh, they play themselves in, and they, they sort themselves out. Then they're expected to move up to four or three. And Ponting became, as you said, Ponting started off his first test match at Wacker 95-96 against Sri Lanka, right? Uh, he started at uh, number six, and there was Stuart Law in that game. Uh, and then then became one of the top number three batsmen. I mean, Bradman was the greatest and he batted at number three. Uh, Tendulkar is one of the greatest, but he batted at number four. Lara batted between three and four. So we can go on and on, right? But I think that the point is, uh, whether you're an opener or number three or number four, mostly it comes down to what they do in their first class cricket. I mean, now the modern world is a little different with T20 leagues and all, right? Typically, batsmen or batters have been comfortable in their positions, right? There's no big difference between three and four, but again, depends on the team, right? As Aftab rightly pointed out, if you are batting in India, in India, you want to score quickly because most of the wickets are reasonably flat before the spinners come in. So you may want your number three, if you get a good start, like 50 for none, you may want your number three to come and get some boundaries, you know, start with a few boundaries and, you know, you know spread the field around. On the other hand, if you play in England, in, as I said, in the last five or six years when the batting has become really challenging, you need a number three to you know, really knuckle down and you know, play inside the line, et cetera, et cetera. But the other thing about number three and four uh, I'd like to talk about is it's all about the mindset, right? Like, for example, I've seen a Sachin Tendulkar or a Brian Lara or some of these great people. They perform, sometimes tend to perform better when it's two for, I mean, nine for two or 10 for two. Because the ball is still fresh, the field is attacking. Because some people, you know, some of these great batsmen, they would look at, it, look at it and say, hang on, I got three slips and I got pretty much an attacking field. That means it's an invitation for me to score runs because I can go to the back foot, punch, and then I can, you know, touch and it goes to, because there's no long off, right? Or mid off or long off. So I think it all depends on the mindset uh, and the way the batsmen perform. See, I don't think Rahul Dravid's thing is only an Indian thing because even Joe Root, right? I'm sure Nakul will talk about it. There's a lot of debate in England about where Joe Root should bat. Should he bat at number three versus four, right? Um, so 
it's not a debate that's uh, you know exclusive to india or indian cricket or it's not the rahul dravid started this whole mushrooming of this conversation it's a conversation that happens a lot because i'll bring a steve war story right steve war who always batted at number 5 or 6 one of the reasons why one of the reasons right ian chappell had his many reasons why ian chappell called him a selfish batsman was he never moved up even after his experience he always batted number 5 to aftab's point i think ian Ch- i mean steve war said oh you need someone to play for the second new ball well i mean that's one theory right i mean why would he play for the second new ball when he had to bat the first new ball very well right so there are apologists who define defend batting low the low, lower down the order saying that oh you need to play better for the uh, in a new ball that's going to come after 80 overs right so it's another theory i don't to answer your question i don't think you have to put an asterisk and say that top 2 or 3 should get more runs right no because in certain condition it's a lot easier and sometimes in the second innings when you come back against a tired attack like for example if you talk about okay first innings correct let me give a slightly different scenario a side bats first it gets bowled out for 145 on a cabbage patch of a wicket uh, in england and then the side number 2 the pitch is still doing a lot gets bowled out for 80 all out guess what happens the first bowling side haven't had enough rest now the opening batsman come in the conditions are easing they got money for jam in terms of runs because the bowlers are tired and when the bowlers are tired you know the lengths are aren't great so to me all this talk that uh, one and two are the most difficult thing yes opening is specialist but they get their free time as well on certain conditions in the second inning sometimes in the first innings uh, so i'm not a big fan of giving them extra a couple of percentage points or in extra incentives to say why they're great right and also as i said first inning second innings or sometimes third versus fourth innings and sometimes you, you you'd rather be an opener and sometimes openers face spinners in certain conditions so which is quite unusual as well so i understand it's a specialist position it requires slightly different skills more importantly different mindset in terms of how they do it and also how they played in the first class cricket and how they evolved and as in the australian case some of them are expected to make the adjustment and move up the value chain uh, so those are the expectations so i don't believe uh, that they have to be given special runs but if you choose an all time great right for example a len hutton uh, versus somebody like peter may uh, i mean i would rate len hutton higher because len hutton's technique was so good and he faced a lot of bowlers so those kind of weighted averages we can give in terms of uh, you know a chattering class kind of a debate um or a a debate among elites or nostalgia merchants but not in the from a statistics books that's what i would say sakib all right so let's uh, bring nakul in and uh, let's kick start uh, the conversation that we had discussed and we set the stage for it so nakul you can all, all, all you know you can answer uh, the same question as well what i asked vijay and after in different lens and answer it from maybe the english perspective uh does this debate is this debate more prevalent there uh where you bat and what are the more difficult batting positions and secondly what is your view on let's set the stage uh is this the most difficult batting era as the most statisticians have pointed out because of the disciplined bowling attacks and uh and all the stats that surround basically there's no weak link you don't find like a weak bowler bowling as a fourth bowler so let's kick start you know the main conversation now As far as the English conversations about batting positions, it has come down to Joe Root. England have tried Joe Root a not insignificant number of times at uh, number three. I think they, you know, somebody has a better average at three versus four. 
I don't think it's, it doesn't answer the whole question, but it is it is noticeable that his that he's done a lot better at at four than at three, and that might be expected because you're not facing the new ball as much. You're batting in England, which has tended to, or at least the the prevailing wisdom is that it gets a bit easier to bat once the shine goes off the new ball. However, that I think has to be. Um, Slightly, there's some caveats applied to that because actually in the last few years that hasn't been true and you can look into the into what data that does come out uh, about how much the ball moves at different stages of a ball's life actually the these there's duke balls in england they don't really stop moving much um you, you get consistent swing and seam movement um almost throughout the innings in fact it can be actually sometimes uh, more the case that uh, that the ball actually starts moving more after eight to ten overs because the the lacquer is off. Uh, so the, that um, so that that in a sense that premium of seeing off the new ball and uh, and not being able to score so, your, so many runs yourself actually doesn't really apply. I think it, if anything, perhaps it it makes Joe Root's achievements this season all the more extraordinary. Uh, England tried Joe Root at three and it didn't work as well as it did at, at four. So, as much as people look at where a player bats is sort of as an, again, almost as an ego thing, um, you know, are you moving up to four because, you know, are you a braver batter because you're batting at three versus four? Um, the popular conception does make exceptions for openers, um, and that's probably not going to change anytime soon. Uh, but... But but the the conditions of the team have to be taken into account. You know, Steve Waugh could afford to uh, be worried about the second new ball because he was batting behind a really good top four, which would more likely than not get his side to uh, to the second new ball with a decent chance of doing something about it. And he was mostly, or not mostly actually, in the latter period of his career, in the in the early two thousands. Was a bat was a more batting friendly era, and you can see that in the in the averages when you bracket them by by different periods of time. So that's actually quite a good segue. You know, he bat- came through a very bowler friendly period in the nineties, uh, or for most of the nineteen nineties. Then into the early part of his into the sorry the early part of the two thousands, he finished in two thousand and four. Uh, was a more uh, was a more batter friendly uh, period, and then through the two thousands, um, again the um, as pitchers were starting to get better, uh, the, it was a much more batting-friendly time. The batting average is almost everywhere in the world, except New Zealand, which is a, which uh, which is a bit of a special case. Uh, were much higher between say two thousand and uh, two thousand and fifteen or so than they have been in the in the in the, the six years that we've just seen, where almost everywhere it's got harder to bat again, except. Uh, except New Zealand, and then New Zealand is also you can break it down further by actually New Zealand batters are doing much better in New Zealand, uh, but because of how good the New Zealand attack is, New uh, opposition batters aren't, uh, and the same is true in India, uh, where there's been a slight fall because the pitches in India are a little bit more bowler friendly than they used to be, certainly more seamer friendly, um, but the cause and effect is quite difficult there because. India's attack is light years ahead uh, of where it was, uh, certainly in terms of in terms of depth, in terms of um, in terms of quality of seamers. You're not having the spinners doing all the work. Um, you know th- that's why this the series earlier this this year when England toured was such a weird one because the pitches haven't been like that in India for a while, for a few years. Uh, quite so so spinner 
um, dominant, almost seamer exclusive, um, really. Um, so you're getting Indian batters doing slightly, you know, doing it's roughly comparable, but uh, but overseas batters uh, have found it much much harder in in India, um, and that's uh, to take that specific example. The problem with t- the problem with this this argument is that you have to break it down uh, and you have to apply so many specifics because no two test match playing nations are different the conditions change very significantly um and and it i find it really interesting drilling down into all this stuff but it can make it can make answering the question in a in a succinct manner in a in a, in a broad manner very difficult um be, because of all of these different nuances and this is what makes cricket great right you can we we can talk with all of these tools that we have at our disposal all of the statistical tools all of the evidential tools all of the footage that is available to us the vast amount of live television all of the resources available to us and we'll still never master uh, that's why that's why i love cricket so much is because every time i ask it a question three new questions arise from it um but i don't think that there's there's very little doubt that it's that the last few years have been very difficult for batters around the world in 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 test cricket um to my money that's made test cricket partly why test cricket has been so interesting around the world um in in recent in recent years uh we're not getting very many 500 v 500 um first innings uh scores or even when we are we're getting pitches that will tend to fall apart very suddenly towards the end of the towards the end of the test match we've seen that in india a few times we've seen that in the uae uh quite consistently as well uh, during pakistan's fantastic run uh there um uh, and as far as you know looping it back to the to the question of um you know the expectations of different batting positions i mean australia almost has a so i think ian chapel almost has a dogmatic uh and again ian chapel as an illustration of a type there's almost this dogmatic thing that the best batter's got to bat at three um which in other countries just isn't the case there isn't quite so much of a fundamentalist uh quality to that to that question um in most teams the best batter will be batting at probably four three four five somewhere in there depending on the makeup of the particular team there are some extreme examples where you say a batter probably should have moved up shibnarayan chandrapur probably should have been batting at four uh through the latter part of his career when he was carrying that west indies team um but but for the most part it'll be about the the strength of the of the players above them that will determine uh that will determine whether i'll give you a good recent example asad shafiq the pakistani player uh, fantastic at number six. Uh, scored more test hundreds than anyone else at number six, out doing sobers. Brilliant. Uh, batting behind as uh, um, Yunus Khan uh, and Mizbal Haq and Azhar Ali, uh, who are a very, very good middle order. He, when uh, when Mizbal and Yunus Khan retired, everyone thinks, right, great, he'll move up to number three, four, and, and it'll all be sorted, but it didn't work. Uh, he he his returns dropped off uh and he's now out of the side probably you're better off than you know leaving the part of the team that's working where it is and finding a specialist to do that that job um so that the the model that that, that vijay describes of a player sort of serving their time at five and moving up to the position they were born to play at at three and four it doesn't necessarily apply all the time. Michael Clark, another great example, didn't work when he moved up the order, but they found Stephen Smith, which was a better uh, uh, solution for for all concerned. 
So uh, I think it does not to be too fundamentalist about about these things. I'll just quickly make a point on Asad Shafiq. That's why I had my um, hand up um, and because it was part of our agenda for the podcast. He's basically a doppelganger for Ajinkya Rahane. And I was just looking at numbers um, and one of my Pakistani friends actually shared this with me. 78 test matches for Rahane, 77 for Asad Shafiq. 4,750 runs for Rahane, 4,660 runs for Ashut Shafiq. Rahane averages 39 now, Ashut Shafiq averages 38.19. 1200s for both of them. Rahane has about 2450s, Ashut Shafiq has about 2750s. And case in point, Pakistan actually got rid of him a couple of years ago. So I'll <laughs> kind of rest my rest my case there. Well, that, well that's a good example. But Rahane is still batting behind Chateshwar Pujara and Virat Kohli. He's still batting behind two very experienced, so, uh, very high which, output which, which players. I think, which I think, in, 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 which is my point that the scrutiny on Rahane needs to be much more um, than than you know than what it is right now. I think he gets away with a lot than than what is warranted. Yeah. So, so uh, Shakib, from my perspective, I think uh, I agree with Nakul in terms of. It's harder era to bat on in the last four, five, six years, especially in England, right? So let's start talk about England, right? And I want to give us a bit of a context, right? Because sometimes, as Nakul talked about, right, is someone deliberately doctoring the wickets to make it harder to score runs or make it very bowler friendly? I think your viewers deserve to know what has happened in England, right? So let's go back to 2014, right? So when India toured, sorry, I'll go to 2011. Let's look at the Indian tours, right? When India went to England in 2011, Duncan Fletcher, who was a, the then Indian coach, complained about the pitchers doing too much, right? And uh, it was India's kind of the batting was aging. Rahul Dravid was the only one who did well and Sachin wasn't fully prepared for the tour and he didn't do very, very well. And others completely failed, right? And uh, the English attack of Anderson Broad, Tremlett and Bresnan. I mean, we may, I mean, uh, I shouldn't say we, India made uh, Bresnan look like Malcolm Marshall at times, especially at that test match in uh, Edge Fashion, right? So, and when Indian bowlers bowled, there was nothing in the pitch. So basically, England completely walloped India, and Duncan Fletcher even whinged about the fact that the pitches were so uh, difficult to bat on. That was 11 years ago, 10 years ago. So let's not get carried away by the fact that, uh, you know, it's only in the last five years. But when India India went to England in 2014, the first test match at Trenbridge was a, such a snooze fest, right? I think 500 versus 500. If I'm right, that's where Anderson scored that 81, his highest test score, right? Um, that's very famous Jadeja, Anderson, uh, not a dressing room incident, a staircase incident took place. But I think that was one, uh, a very important aspect in England. I think around 2012 as well, they started to realize that the climate uh, change has started to impact England, which means they kind of realized the winters were getting uh, really wetter, as well as even summers, they were getting downpours, which were harder than the typical English way of drizzle and stuff. And also the outfields, right? I think what has really changed in England from, say, 2012 and 13, A, they've completely revamped their uh, drainage system, which means they're more modern, which means they're able to they quickly drain, but they're still able to retain enough moisture on the pitch. I think that's one important factor. I think Daniel Nocross or somebody made it very clear. Now, they, I think they're able to maintain 32% moisture 
despite not worrying about uh, the pitch being wet or the outfield being wet. So I think they improved technology in anticipation of the climate change as kind of forced that. The other thing is the balls, the juke balls, right? The jukes, what we saw in 2018, I mean, historically, for someone to get a perspective in 1990, when India toured England, Sachin Tendulkar's debut series, or in that, you know, county, right? County cricket. Um, Neil Fairbrother scored that uh, famous triple hundred um, at the Oval against for Lancashire against Surrey. Uh, I think both sides scored 700 versus 800. In that particular summer, they had the seam uh, trimmed for uh, you know to make it uh, more batter friendly, which means runs flowed even in the Tests or County. But you move forward. If you look at the 2000 summer when West Indies toured, when Caddick took those four wickets in a in a particular Test match at Headingley. The West Indies batsmen struggled and Craig White looked like, uh, you know, Malcolm Marshall plus plus, right? Uh, he got a lot of things moving around. 2000 was one of the very difficult summers. But to come back to Knuckles' point, yes, in the last five, six years, due to the drainage facility, due to uh, the, the outfield, I mean, they're able to maintain certain amount of uh, water content or moisture, they're able to do it. And also the skill of Anderson, let's not forget, right? People like Anderson have really, really made bowling an art, right? An art which is very hard to decipher. And also bowlers have become far more skillful. The wobble seam and a few other things they picked up from Ahmed Asif and others, right? That has really played the part. So that's England. I give it to uh, Nakul because especially when someone like Alistair Cook says that he found it very hard even to bat in the last couple of years, his, uh, couple of years at county cricket that kind of led to his early retirement that kind of speaks volumes for someone like Alistair Cook to retire early. But it's not the case in Australia. If you take away the pink ball test in Adelaide, because that has completely changed the atmospherics, because to retain the shine, they leave a lot more grass on the surface. Australian wickets, uh, trust me, are very, very batting friendly. So this whole narrative that it has become very hard to bat everywhere in the last five years, it's true for England, not true in Australia, which is another major country, right? Because it's still very flat. We don't play at WACA anymore. WACA is not as bouncy as the case. Optus is reasonably okay. If you take away the Adelaide, Adelaide Oval, which used to be a good flat batting wicket, which used to do a little bit in the last two days because of the pink ball. Otherwise, even Gabba when India played, there wasn't much in it, right? So SCG has still been flat. So Australia, it's very flat. And when India came here in 2014, Virat Kohli scored 400s. It was, you know, all roads. On the other hand, when India toured over here in 2011, 10 years ago, the wickets had a lot more in it. I was at the SCG ground. I was there even in 2014. It, there was more grass at the WACA and stuff. So in Australia, I wouldn't agree with that. New Zealand is interesting because New Zealand has kind of started to produce these absolute green tops. And also New Zealand depends on when you play cricket, right? They play cricket in October, first class cricket. It's like a, an absolute grass. Uh, it's like a Wimbledon surface, uh, the pitch, and teams get bowled over. But New Zealand mostly play their cricket in say February, right? late summer. By then the pitches get better. But important thing about uh, New Zealand they produce those green tops, but they flatten out very quickly. After one or two days, you get absolute batting beauty. So again, New Zealand, it depends on when you bat. Right? Sometimes you almost win the toss and bowl first. Uh, so that's another factor. South Africa, I wouldn't say it has changed a lot. I think it's more to do with the, the quality of the attack and the confidence, etc. Et right? South Africa, you, you typically get that. Heifel used to have the bounce and a bit of sideways movement. Uh, wickets can be slower uh, on the coastal side of you know, either Cape Town or I mean, Newlands or Port Elizabeth, but depends on sometimes the waves and other you know, other factors. And as Nakul said, India is different. India, uh, you know, in India, it's, the ball doesn't move around, right? It's, it's all about more of uh, turning kits. But what we saw for the England series or in 2019 or for the 2015 South African series, uh, some of the big turners were there. Now, 
what I want to ask a question, broader question over here is, the reason I brought up the English pitch and the factors was, some of them are driven by climatic conditions or change in drainage, et cetera, et cetera. Are they preparing pitches specifically make it bowler friendly? Or are the batsmen less prepared? Because nowadays you hardly get any first-class cricket or any side games. Look at what happened. India went to England and didn't have any game before the World Test Championship. Well, New Zealand had two test matches because of the schedule. And then there was no three-day game between India and any other side before India played the first test match at uh, sorry, Trent Bridge right, in this year. And even England didn't hardly have any first-class cricket. The fact that the Big Bash, the 100, uh, the, the Blast and others have taken the, the bulk of the summer, the, the main summer, means there aren't too many first-class games being played. When Australia plays at home, there is no shield game for them to pick anyone because the shield games are either played in October or in Feb, March. But when the test series happens, there's no shield game. So we need to look at this particular factor that there are no side games. There, are, there isn't enough time for batsmen to get acclimatized for a tour, even for home teams, which could be contributing to some of the hasty shots. I'm not going to say T20 has affected batting, but are they prepared enough? On the other hand, when you talk about bowlers, sometimes, you know, we know English cricket history about, right? You know, when before the central contracts, some of the bowlers like Angus Fraser and Phil DeFreitas were bowled down to the, you know, literally uh, flogged to the ground by having to bowl over like, you know, 70% of their overs for the county cricket, which means they were like absolutely knackered when they went to the test matches. So I would like to ask a question. Okay. In England, absolutely agreed. And the other part is in West Indies. Nakul is right because investing is the main thing. Once they move to Jukes, the, the ball is doing more because the Kookaburra wasn't doing very well. I know they're using a slightly different variant of Jukes. To answer the question, I wouldn't agree that everywhere it's harder to bat in the last five years. England, absolutely, yes. Australia, not necessarily. West Indies, to some extent, yes. Uh, and some of the other conditions depends on how the statistic um, statistics stack up. The other point I'd like to talk about is, is it, I mean, where I have a slightly different view is, is it the deeper bowling attacks where I have some points? Or sites like New Zealand, they never had very good batsmen to complement the bowlers. Right now, they've got a reasonably world-class batting lineup. Is that helping them to become a stronger, a potent side than what they were before? All right, so I'll, let me just quickly jump in and bring Aftab in, and then I know Manakur also has to respond. So Aftab, this sets the stage for you. You did a great podcast for The Last Ticket Guys where you talked about tighter bowling attacks and why the numbers are not what they are for, say, the other era of the 2000, which was the most batting-friendly era. So Vijay has also set the stage. So I, I would say uh, take it over and, you know, combine your response using the total back, backdrop for this podcast and then the question Vijay is asking. Go ahead. Yeah, and I think I would say, as I sort of argued on that podcast, right, it, it's a confluence of factors that are that are coming together. I think Vijay kind of listed them out fairly well. And we don't know how long this is going to last. I think we are at a unique point um, in test cricket where we sort of have at least some degree of balance or equilibrium between the top five slides, uh, driven by a lot of things. Um, and, and you know, it's uncertain how long this balance would last. One interesting sort of new, um, you know, piece of statistics that I tried to look at last night while, while researching for this was um, I, I took a sort of a, I bracketed different decades, or at least the last three decades, starting from 1991 till about the end of 2020. And for each of the three decades, I looked at uh, 
bowlers um, who took more than uh, 50 test wickets um, just to uh, 100 test wickets sorry you know just to kind of get a reasonable idea of who are the top bowlers in each period and one of the things that i was looking for was was depth right so if if you had a list of bowlers who took 100 test wickets in that 10 year period uh, what was that distribution across different teams and the thing that jumps out to you is England and, and Australia have kind of always had a reasonable mix so across the three decades and each individual decade, England had about like five to six bowlers. Australia has about five to six as well. And then you start seeing a certain variation, right? So India, for example, in the 1990s, it's only Srinath and Kumble, right? Just two bowlers, right? It, it goes to about four in, in the in the 2000s. Um, but in, 2000, in, in the 2011 uh, to 20 period, there are six Indian bowlers, right? And I'm counting Bumrah in because he was almost there, right? But if you take Bumrah out, that's five, right? That's probably the highest ever in, in Indian history. And then you see some others, right? I mean, whereas in 1990s, like Pakistan had four bowlers who took 100 test wickets, stayed at around four in the 2000s, right? But that's fallen to two, right? So you could almost argue that in this whole, you know, great bowling era and you know, wonderful results, there's a side that's missed out because it just hasn't had a, a good pace bowlers uh, over the last seven or eight years, right? And hasn't had the kind of results that, that they wanted. Um, so it's interesting, I think, when you kind of look at it, and I think the depth in, in, in pace bowling obviously um, is, is something that, that comes into play. And on the point around England, I think which is right. And one um, sort of piece of statistic uh, that I pulled out um, when you and I spoke, uh, Sakib, last time, previewing the India-England series was, I looked at again, you know, from 1991 to 2020, just you take three decades and, you know, looked at um, the top run scorers um, in in uh, from visiting sites uh, to England. And I took a cutoff of about 300 runs, you know, reasonably lower, I would say, cutoff, but just to get a sense of, you know, how visiting batsmen were doing. And the, the numbers are just stopped, right? Between 91 and 2000, there were about like 36 uh, batsmen who, who crossed that cutoff, right? And some of them are not even batsmen, like, it includes people like Shane Vaughan. Um, and, and the number stays roughly consistent at about 35 or so between 2001 and 10, but it just falls down dramatically to about 25. Um, in in the 2011 to 20 period, and no, there there are no lucky tailenders sneaking in there in there. Right, there's a genuine top order batsman um, in there. So th there is there is the fact that in some places, yes, batting has has become difficult. Uh, depth in bowling attacks has increased, um, and it, it's showing in the returns of the the batsmen as well. Um, you know, when you compare the 2001 to 2010 period the you know you had about 60 uh, percent of of, uh, of if you take a subset of uh, batsmen who scored more than 3,000 runs in a 10-year period 60 percent of those batsmen are averaging more than 45 but if you take that same data set for the 2011 to 2020 period that that number goes down to about 42 percent so effectively if you're scoring more than 3,000 runs in between 2011 and 20 there's a 40% probability you are averaging more than 45, right? So you're you're still struggling. And the number of tests that you're playing on average it has come down as well because you're failing more and probably getting dropped a little bit more. Um, but but it is a it's a confluence of factors. It's not that suddenly pitches have become difficult everywhere. I think it's good batsmen coming in in weaker sides, better pace bowling attacks, um, and 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 difficult conditions and balls changing. I mean, a good example is if you look at the current India and England series, right? India didn't like hit 450 
um, or, or 500 in any of those um, in those test matches. Their batting struggled as much as the English batting, but they were competitive because they had four really good quality fast bowlers that could make England struggle in home conditions. Right? If if this has still been the 2011 bowling attack that India had carried, they, they probably would you know it would have been a different kind of a series, and we wouldn't have been talking about you know bat this being a difficult batting era and all of those things. Right? So uh, it's 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 a it's a blended perspective and it's uh, i and i keep arguing that it's it's a unique sort of ecosystem of things coming together which um is we'll see how how long it sustains all right so i'll come back to you about the dravid pujara comparison you and mayank had made on the podcast because that's really i want to get down the last 30 minutes here into more narrative based uh, you know examples we have talked like sophisticated stats which is all good so let me bring in nakul quickly he had his hand raised for the longest time and then I'll set the floor open for Vijay and start fielding some personal example question, personalized. So, Nakul, uh, you want to respond? Uh, I know you had a hand on for a while. Yeah, and the the point about depth of bowling attacks is, I mean, it's very, very obvious when you look at uh, India. And Vijay talked about that, that 2011 tour. And Duncan Fletcher complaining about the pitches being too, being too difficult to bat on looks ridiculous when you look at England's first innings, look at England's scores during that series. Uh, the first test, they scored 474 in the first innings. Second test, they scored 544 in the second innings. Third test, they scored 700. Uh, the fourth test, 591. Uh, and even the touring side, in Northant scored 355 in a, in a game that India played mid-tour. The Indian bowling attack just was basically non-existent in that, in that series. Uh, Zahir Khan got injured very early in the series. They brought back an unfit RP Singh. Uh, Ishant Sharma was in his doldrum period at the time, and they they had nothing. Uh, there was there was it was complete. Um, you know, once you got in, basically, if you didn't make any mistakes, you were going to score runs. Um, th- th- that had a great deal more to do with with that series than than the pitches, really. And it's similar when when you go to uh, when you go to Australia uh, later that uh, later that year. Um, Australia score yeah, th- Australia score three hundred in every at least. And Melbourne's a slight difference, but then Sydney, Australia scores 659 for four declared. Uh, third test in Perth, um, a pretty bouncy surface uh, back then, Australia 369. Fourth test in Adelaide, Australia scores 604 in uh, in the in the first innings. Uh, the the Indian attack had a great deal more to do with uh, with their performance uh, or than 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 the pitches they were playing on really in that because if you look at the the opposition uh, that can't all be just be justified by you know conditions easing or or whatever um and i, I was looking at crickviz did an did an analysis uh of during lockdown in the uk last year when there was no cricket on uh of the impact that tour games uh, have on uh, and the number of first class uh overs essentially faced has on a and a visiting team's performance on a batting team's performance and looking over a decent number of series there basically is no correlation in any direction so it, it it's not as it, it there isn't a simple comparison that if you play more tour games or more uh more match preparation before the series that you're going to do better uh than the, than a team that doesn't have that that preparation, essentially, it isn't going to raise your overall 
uh, ability to uh, to play those conditions uh, much above what it would have been anyway. So that which which um, and there's a, what what the factors are that plays into that I don't know uh, particularly. Um, you know I don't really believe in innate skill in 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 that sense because uh, because clearly there are environmental and, and training factors that play into uh, play into this and maybe because training isn't observable in the same way directly um we we don't we don't pay as much attention to it even though perhaps we we should but it's difficult to uh to say because teams don't train in public generally uh in uh certainly we're not watching it with anyone near the same kind of laser focus that we are uh the the on-field action uh the 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 long-term curve uh, over the last uh, medium-term curve has been in the last few years uh that in general and it's not just about pitches uh um Aftab is absolutely right. It's a multi, it's it's a, it's a multifactorial uh, question. It isn't just about pitches and, and conditions, uh, but there are this confluence of factors. Whether it's better drainage, which means that the pitches uh, the, the pitches can retain moisture without uh, without leading to waterlogged games. Whether it's uh, the the SG ball in India, which has become which has a much prouder seam now, which aids. Uh, which aids seam bowlers and and spinners alike. Uh, the Duke ball, uh, the uh, the the fact that we play a certain amount of cricket, certainly in England and I think in other countries as well, South Africa, under floodlights during the day. So the ball, for whatever reason, and this is incredibly complicated, moves around more. And bowlers are getting bowlers are getting more skillful, and that skill is filtering down further. Whereas it's very interesting looking at this compared to the nineties. Uh, where, which was a very bowling-friendly period, and people would talk about the great fast bowling partnerships of that time. Uh, you know, um, Walsh and Ambrose, or Vakar and Vasim, or uh, or Pollock and Donald, uh, say, um, or uh, Glenn, and then and then others, you know, Glenn McGrath as well. But that that depth, not many teams had that depth of bowling. You look now, even in the understrength, England can put out a very decent attack. We saw this understrength India team in Australia putting out a very competitive attack. They've got enough that they can get down to sixth or seventh bowlers. Australia have a lot of bowlers, uh, even outside of the uh, outside of Cummins, Stark, and Hazelwood, who can be very, very competitive. South Africa keep losing players, but seem able to put out strong teams. New Zealand won in England with uh, with a lot of players uh, resting. Um, Pakistan, the point Aftab making about players not reaching a hundred a hundred wickets is probably uh, is worth bearing into mind but i would say pakistan don't get to play an awful lot of cricket and there's a lot more um there's a lot of rotation between those fast bowlers uh now than than there has been uh than there has been in in, in the past you you wouldn't get players playing for playing for a long time a lot of their best bowlers keep getting injured um you know Mohammed amir is a good example and eventually has now quit test cricket uh, probably their best bowler over the last um few years and i'm sure we'll you know, if he plays for any length of time, I'm sure we'll see Shaheen Shah Afridi uh, and maybe Hassan Ali as well. When you know, if he plays enough cricket uh, over the next few years, uh, reach those uh, those marks to be added to his to his sample size. Uh, even Sri Lanka, in probably the weakest Sri Lanka team in in the last fifteen twenty years, uh, have actually quite a lot of bowlers. Um, again, they can't keep them fit, but they've got a lot of them. You know, uh, gone are the days when um, you know. Sri Lanka, when they were at, at their peak, were a very lopsided team. 
give you a statistic. Mutaya Muralidharan has been retired now for in Test cricket for 13 years. I think that's right, you're 13 years. Um, he's still taken uh, an absurd percentage of, of all of Sri Lanka's uh, test wickets. Um, it, it, it's really quite extraordinary. Just let me look at the uh, the, uh, the stat, because I did this for a, for a piece of mine um, uh, recently. Um, Bangladesh are starting to, to bring through some, uh, some bowlers. They, I don't think there is a single team in the world uh, that has a less deep uh, in terms of difference between the best and the worst uh, attack than it did uh, than it did a few years ago. You look at some of the West, some of the change bowlers bowling behind Walsh and Ambrose, and they wouldn't get close to this current West Indies team. Um, not even close. You know, you're you're picking Kemar Roach, Shannon Gabriel, Jaden Seals, Alzari Joseph against against any of Rion King or Nixon McLean or Cameron Cuffey or Corey Collymore. Um, absolutely. Uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, Muthaya Murli Dharan has been retired since 2008, I think it was, uh, and has still taken almost 20% of all of Sri Lanka's test wickets. That simply wouldn't happen now, and it won't happen. Um, you know, no one will ever take a, a percentage of a team's wickets that high again. And he had what? I mean, the vast as seam support for, for any length of time uh, would be the only one who, who you could genuinely say was a, a good uh, test fast bowler for uh, for any significant period of time. Uh, the we in India you get a lot of talk about the MRF Pace Academy and the the sort of the the huge upskilling of fast bowlers and fast bowling coaching. And India is absolutely not the only country where that where that uh, has has taken place. Um, so all of these factors have, have combined to make uh, to make Test cricket. Um, a particularly challenging proposition um and in 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 australia you're getting uh bowlers like cummins and hazelwood are managing to be incredibly effective despite the fact they don't actually move the ball that much off the uh off the scene just by sheer skill and accuracy uh and pace of course as well um it so there, there there's a there's a there's a quality difference there perhaps as uh, as well, New Zealand are finding ways on on pitches that Vijay is absolutely right. They do become flat, um, and actually often are easier to bat on. Uh, you know, you might get a little period on day one where they're where the ball's moving a little bit, but then they're not the the seam wobbly green tops of, of yore, um, and that has no doubt aided the current New Zealand batting uh, lineup because that's the case in first class cricket as well. They made a very deliberate decision about ten years ago to uh, to change their pitches to pitches where you couldn't just wobble the ball on a length and take uh, and take your wickets in the in the twenties anymore. Uh, so you, it, it has increased the the necessity for bowlers who who did more with the ball and could bowl faster, and has meant that batters learn how to construct an innings and score runs rather than just survive. Maybe a change will happen in English county cricket where that will be well that will be similar because of the because of the way that uh, we're getting a lot of uh, a lot of cricket very early in the season now. Uh, when when batting against accurate wobbly seam bowling is very very difficult, and you're um, you're trying to survive as a batter, which is no way to build yourself up against against test uh, in, into a test cricketer who can score runs against eighty plus and eighty five plus mile an hour seam bowling, which is the bulk of uh, of what you get. Um, so all of these all of these questions are of course. Um, 
aided and and influenced by a multitude of of factors um but the the it 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 is it is simply true that uh, that uh, that batters are having to work harder for longer uh uh now um as far as you can as far as you can tell from the the raw numbers of uh, frankly uh, runs per wicket and balls per wicket um taken um you know Dale Stain's bowling average against his competitors or strike rate rather I should say his, his competitors would be pretty remarkable now it's absolutely unbelievable uh looking uh looking against the bowler looking against uh, his period then um I would pity uh, it would be even harder facing Dale Stain at his peak now than it was facing Dale Stake at his peak in, t- peak in say 2009 right so that's uh, quite the unwrapping there and a lot of good points. England is not the new Australia, we all agree. Cricket is not what it used to be. I spoke with Jeff Lawson maybe a month ago. He said in a four-month Ashes tour, they would be playing close to 15 games, like six test matches, and there'll be like eight or nine warm-up games against various counties, few one-days. So cricket has definitely become a franchise game where test cricket you know, has to be scheduled accordingly. So let me bring Vijay in. Uh, Nakul has given us a lot of food for thought, but I'll ask you a direct question. You know, when India was touring Australia earlier this year, there was this big comparison going on between the current Aussie lineup versus the McGrawley, Gillespie and Vaughan lineup. So using, you know, the notion that today we have more disciplined attacks. Vijay, I know you have a few things to say. So use that comparison as your benchmark and then I'll bring Aftab one more time before uh, he leaves the show because I have a question for him as well. But Vijay, floor is yours now. Thank you, Sakib. Uh, I think I'd like to start with a couple of points about Nakul, right? Nakul read out the scores from 2011. Um, I mean, about Duncan Fletcher's complaint about uh, pitches and how many runs did the Indian bowlers concede. I think Nakul has got a very valid point because India were mentally short on both those tours because A, to England, they went with an unprepared side, poorly led by MS Dhoni. And then, I mean, a lot of them were not even ready, both batting and bowling. So, when you're mentally short, doesn't matter what where you play on, you, you'd get bowled out for 200 and then the opponents would uh, uh, run rough short over you. So that happened a fair bit. But again, um, India were really poor tourists and some of the runs England scored weren't even test runs. I mean, Suresh Raina bowling for long hours because India had injured bowlers and so forth. Uh, I, coming back to Australia, I mean, pitches like SCG, day one, it had grass and then it... Uh, it flattened out. I was there for three, four days at the ground. So anyway, so we don't have to go to 2011, but I want to bring um, uh, bring to Nakul's topic about the deeper attacks, right? It's a very interesting proposition. I'm hearing a lot from people like Kartike Date, who are, whom I have a huge amount of respect, who is cricketing view um, on Twitter, right? So I had an interesting debate on this five bowlers versus four bowlers. There is relentless attack. There is no, you know, uh, what, do, what do we say? The, the, the third and fourth bowlers aren't, there. One point Nakul said after Ambrose and Walsh, it was not Rayon King. They had uh, they had uh, Ian Bishop and then had Winston Benjamin. Winston Benjamin was a very good bowler. Ian Bishop, even after 96, was quite effective till 2000s, right? So after that, yes, West Indies quickly fell away. So West Indies had a reasonable attack. Even when Australia uh, won in 95, it was the two Benjamins, Winston and uh, Kenny Benjamin. Winston was pretty quick and he had a reasonable record. Now, this five versus four bowlers, I want to flip it. We've all watched South African cricket. South African cricket was sort of a benchmark in the 90s, right? Because they had the four bowlers and they hardly had any spinners. Sometimes they had the fifth because they had the all-rounders. So someone like Jack Carlis was the fifth bowler. Or Klusen was the fifth bowler. Sometimes they were the sixth bowlers, right? If you go by the depth argument, 
South Africa should have been the number one side throughout the 90s. They weren't. Why? They could never beat Australia in Australia. They could never beat Australia at home. And they could never beat in England in England. So I'll, I'll bring it because this is a series I very closely followed. In fact, because Aftab and I will have uh, uh, very depressing memories of 166 all out when India went to Kingsmead in Durban and uh, India got rolled over by Donald Pollock and co, right? So after India lost the series, South Africans arrived and South Africans were talking about Donald is the best bowler in the world. We have the, the better bowlers and Australia. In fact, Mark Taylor was going through a bit of a, a form slump that he decided to go with three bowlers, not four bowlers. Usually you go with four bowlers. So you look at the, uh, the Wanderers test, the first test match. Uh, if you read the scorecards, you got McGrath with 100 or 105 wickets uh, with 25 average. Gillespie was averaging 47 in his only second test match. Warren had 229 wickets with 23.8. Then you had Bevan, who had only 16 wickets. Steve Waugh, who had stopped being a bowler. And that's it. They didn't pick Rifle uh, or somebody like you know Andy Bickle. So they had a very thin attack from a depth perspective that is a pretty weak attack. If you look at the other side, Donald, 144 wickets, 22.88. Pollock, only 26 wickets, but 23.88. Klusner. Then they had Callis, and they had McMillan and Adams. They had a, a depth attack. So if, if, if people had to play using the simulation games or Kirkwood's games, South Africa should have won the series hands down. No, it was the other way around. Australia won the series absolutely hands down. Why? Because McGrath and Warren, or I should say Warren and McGrath, were brilliant offensive as well as defensive bowlers. They could bowl maximum overs. They, they could... They could bowl both well with the new and old ball, right? I think the biggest difference more than that, <clears throat> if you look at the South African top six, or they had top eight, Hudson, Kirsten, Callis, Cullin and Cronier, Rhodes, Pollock, Klusner, and Dave Richardson, none of them averaged 40 in terms of batting. On the other hand, everybody in the Australian top six, Mark Taylor, Hayden, Matt Elliott, Mark Wall, Steve Warren, Blewett, all of them averaged over 40. Because I remember, to Aftab's point, this was uh, you know, published on the screen when we watch the test match. So basically, <clears throat> on one hand, you have a depth attack, predominantly seamers, home conditions. On the other hand, you have a three-member attack with just McGrath and Gillespie and Warren. Technically speaking, the depth should have won. Didn't because batting matters. If you have quality batsmen, you'd be able to overcome and win. So this whole theory that you need five bowlers or four quicks and depth wasn't needed for a Mark Taylor or Steve Waugh. I'll give another example, right? South Africa went to England, the bitterly contested series in 98, Cronier, <coughs> excuse me, against Stewart, right? Especially Javed Akhtar and the empowering decisions. We, we had the great theater of Donald versus Atherton uh, <coughs> at Trent Bridge in 98. So if you look at the final test at Headingley, they had Donald, Pollock, Intini, Callis, and McMillan. Five quicks, depth, the word depth, right? And Headingley. What did uh, <coughs> England have? They have Goff, Fraser, Cork, and Flintoff. They had only three, and Cork was pretty much, Cork and Fraser were pretty average. So if in terms of depth, they had more. But again, South Africa couldn't win. Same reason, because England had certain batsmen who were better. Now, I had a similar discussion with Cricketing viewer Kartike Date about, uh, you know, when he brought up this five versus four. I asked him a very simple question. Team A has five great bowlers, therefore it's harder to face, versus another team have four bowlers, three plus one, spinners or great spinners. I don't think that's straightforward because the overall batting strength and the aura of the team that makes a huge difference. I'll tell you why. If you have a very strong batting lineup, 
or a, a batting lineup that can make tough runs, runs under difficult conditions. Let's take 97 Old Trafford. Mark Taylor won the toss, elected to bat knowing very well, I my attack is dependent on leg spin of Shane Warne. On a wearing wicket, I want to bat first and get the runs. The Australians thought he was crazy in batting first on the wicket. But Australia did. They eked out runs. So this is what I was telling Karthike Data. When you have that kind of a, a good side, they found a way to get that extra 100 runs. The moment you get those 100 extra runs, what does it mean? You can always have that extra slip or extra gully or extra attacking field for a longer period. So it's not just the quality of the attack and the depth of the attack, which is very important, but also can you have enough fielders on attacking positions? Because statistically, even before Crick Wiz, 60% of the catches go to either gully or first slip or wicket keeper. The moment you can have slips for a longer period, which Mark Taylor used to do as an attacking captain, used to fetch you wickets. So that's a very important aspect. And Kartike Data came back and said, no, it doesn't work because you get lesser bad balls. I said, no, I clearly called him out by saying that, no. And that tour, Australia found it very difficult because one of those tours ball did a fair bit. But the fact that on a par score of 150 on a pitch like that, Australia was able to make 235, that extra 70, 80 runs, and made a huge difference. So coming back to the depth, right, there is a lot of people who are telling me that the Indian side that faced 2018-19 in Australia, right, Cummins, Stark, and Hazelwood, is better than what the Australian sides of 99-2000, bollocks, absolute bollocks, because Cummins, <coughs> Stark, and Hazelwood, and Lyon are a good set of bowlers, no denial, they're a very good bowling side, but they have 200 runs to defend. But when you faced McGrath, Gillespie, Lee, and Vaughan, or Phil Fleming, Gillespie, and Bourne, you had 500 to face. So somebody would argue that the opponents were weak. Like Again, not all opponents were weak. When 19, when Pakistan went to Australia, they had Wazim Makram, uh, Wakari Nishoy, Bakhtar, Razak, and Mahmood. Four of them played, and Mushtaq, very good bowler. So this whole theory that by having extra depth, irrespective of your batting strength, makes it harder. I don't buy the theory because if that was a theory, South Africa would have been the undisputed kings of the 90s and early noughties, which they were not because it couldn't beat Australia. And the other fact is, or even England away from home. The other point, I think Nakul brought up some very good points about Murali, right? For when you talk about the depth, I don't know. Maybe it's looked at from an English perspective. Maybe it's looked at from an English perspective. I understand where they're coming from because spinners don't play a lot of roles. These, I mean, a prominent role these days. But Vaughan, Murali, Mushtaq Ahmed, Saklain Mushtaq, even to some extent Anil Kumble post-2002, the role of a spinner, sometimes two attacking spinners is going to be vital because let's look at the famous 1993 Eden Gardens test when England came to India. They picked four quicks. India had three seamers, spinners rather. So what's the point of having four quicks? Just because you got, you know, they had you know left armor, they had Paul Jarvis, they got Malcolm, they had Chris Lewis. Didn't work. India won by a handsome margin. So my point is, it's a little bit more nuanced to it than simply saying that just because you have that fourth seamer, because Virat Kohli brought up this topic to Michael Atherton in every interview, right? I would rather have four one than three two because he felt the fourth quick would give him the extra attacking option. But I mean, Sakib, you remember, right? I said in the last podcast. Good, better captains are the ones who handle spinners better. Mark Taylor, even Mohammed Azruddin, though he wasn't a great captain tactically, he was a very good captain of handling spinners. Even Saklain Mushtaq flourished really well under Wazim Akram. So I'd like to bring a little bit of balance to the argument, saying that, yes, the depth point, I get that. But if that's the case, South Africa would have been the undisputed champions in the 90s and 2000s. So it's not the case. Therefore, there are times when better batting sides, sides who can knuckle and get runs, complemented with three or four bowlers who are 
good offensive and defensive bowlers can still win your games because there's no point in saying it's having bigger depth leads to wins, right? Even New Zealand, as I pointed out, if you look at their history, they had Sutcliffe, they had Turner, they had Martin Crowe. They never had two batsmen together. Now the fact that they've got Kane Williamson and Ross Taylor, two reasonably world-class, even you know, Latham is looking good, and then they got people like, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, even some of the other batsmen, right? Looking all right. So that has made New Zealand a potent side because they're able to put the first innings runs, even on those grass tops, green tops, I should say. So I think I'd like to look at this slightly differently, but I agree with Nakul that bowling depth is there, but we should definitely consider spin. Bowlers who could bowl well using this, I mean, older ball as well as spin, as well as batting strength to complement bowling, that makes it uh, a difference in terms of the results. Oh, very well said. And uh, let me bring Aftab here quickly. Uh, so Aftab, I'm sure you, you, know, you have to respond to what Vijay said, but also let's do a small comparison. Uh, how in the last wicket podcast, Mike made a point based on the statistics that you had shared that Pujara may be nowhere as close to being a legend as Dravid, but he has done the heavy lifting facing some of the more disciplined attacks. And Dravid has... Uh, 2011 England, you know, cameo was probably one of his best remembered series because that attack was pretty good, even though Vijay just said we made Bresnan look like Malcolm Marshall, but the point still stands. And I would like to add another caveat in there on what Vijay said before he respond. So maybe the attacks were good, but right now these attacks with the much more needed data analysis information, you think that's what's also making these attacks more potent because there's so much data going around each batsman compared to say like 10, 12 years ago. So floor is yours. I think so. I mean, I think we 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 have um, more data and we have more information available. Um, and you know, to 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 some extent, I think you can maybe um, nitpick a little bit and look at certain specific uh, periods of time when you know certain batsmen did better against certain bowling attacks. Um, you know, I think even I've been seeing a fair amount of chatter that even the Tendulkar 248 at at Sydney where, you know, um, he, he didn't pay a single cover drive and people were like, oh, why is Kohli cover driving in England when the ball is moving? Why can't he be like Tendulkar, right? And there were some arguments around that, the fact that Tendulkar was playing against Nathan Bracken and, and, and Brad Williams. Um, so I think you have to contextualize uh, those those things um, to, to some extent. Um, and there's a and 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 then there's kind of like the the whole narrative piece, like um, Dravid's resurgence through much of the first half of the 2000s decade was on the back of the the, the test in Calcutta, right? And suddenly so you kind of build a little bit of an of an aura around him. Um, Bujara trailed off uh, a little bit, but I think much like Dravid, he has question marks about his level of performance in certain countries. So I wouldn't like to get into the into the into the game of um, comparisons and all. But Vijay made a very good point about you know spinners and and how you view spinners and how you view spinners as um, as as attacking options. And I'll just you know sort of throw out one sort of set, set of statistics here at the end. So I looked at just spinners in terms of their performance um, and, and how they had performed over the last sort of three decades. And my cutoff was 50 test wickets for spinners um, in each decade. And it's interesting to see that, you know, while the whole decade of 2000s is kind of like dominated by Murli, who has a, a, a 
astounding average of 21 that nobody even came um, close to. Um, even the spinners have sort of found things difficult over the last uh, five, seven, eight years. Um, and you know, you you see that uh, in in uh, if you if you look at spinners who took more than 50 wickets and how many of them are averaging less than 30, that number was only three in in the decade of 2001 to 2010. And Mudley is one of them, um, uh, along with Vaughan. Um, and that number went up to uh, six in in 2011 to 2020, and includes Ashwin, Jadeja, but a few other you know um, folks from um, from non-Indian teams as uh, as well. Um, and then I'll leave uh, one sort of last data point, um, which was interesting because I looked at the 1990s decade, um, and you know you would think that the person with the best average bowling average among spinners in that decade would probably be either Murli or, or Vaughan. But very interestingly, the one guy who pips both of them is Stuart McGill, uh, who took about 60 odd wickets, which is a decent number, decent sample size, uh, but at a better average, slightly, you know, under 25 um, compared to Murli and Vaughan, who are both above 25, right? And an underrated baller, but again, um, you know, Australia were lucky at that point of time to have those riches where if one's not playing, you could get McGill and who, who could be equally attacking um, as needed. So, I, I mean, I think, again, you know, looping the whole discussion and thread back, um, there's, there's plenty of things going on, but you have to parse a few things out before, you know, jumping to conclusions. And Vijay's example of South Africa versus uh, versus Australia is, is, is an absolute great one. And I think it goes back to one argument that... Um, Chapelli used to make, which I think was a valid argument um, in the sense that A, South Africa were a very conservative team and B, I think this whole thing at that point of time was the sum of parts for South Africa, right? Whereas Australia in the 90s were very clear-headed, right? We play our top five batsmen, our top four bowlers um, and we have a wicketkeeper, right? And that, that's the composition of our squad, right? And we do not compromise on quality and that showed in the results. No, so, uh, Sakib, Sakib, one point about, I think Aftab brought up the topic, right? It's not against Aftab, but this is the problem I have with statistics when it's used very cleverly, right? Aftab brought up the topic about Stuart McGill. Everyone knows, right? I know the statistic that when Vaughan and McGill played together, McGill averaged better. Uh, and as Aftab talked about, even he averaged better than Vaughan and Murali in the 90s. But again, we need to look at the next level of statistic, as I talked about. It's the ability to be a good offensive as well as a defensive bowler. That's what gives the captains to control, to control a game. Because sometimes after 60 balls with a kookaburra ball, it's not jukes, right? You need someone to control so that you can get wickets in 20 overs. So you can start to uh, do that. If you look at McGill, he's got a very poor uh, economy rate. He was a very, what do we say? He used to bowl one loose ball and over. He used to get a lot of wickets. It's a bit like, you know, so that means the captain doesn't have any control to have a say in a game, because if it's a flat, flat pitch, you need a, a bowler who could be defensive. Very interestingly, Sky Sports, very interesting. usually they're very good. They, this is a rubbish statistic they put out comparing Moin Ali with Jim Laker, <laughs> because Jim Laker averages around 21 and Moin Ali averages around 37, because they use strike rate to say, okay, they're comparable strike rates in the 50s. But I, I don't think they have a, a, an economy rate for Jim Laker. But Moin Ali's biggest problem is he doesn't provide the uh, you know control for a, an English captain. But again, he gets good wickets like he did with the Virat Kohli at the Oval when Virat looked pretty dangerous in the second innings. So the, the point is, a 37 average is compared to 21 based on strike rate. I think that's a very interesting topic. Maybe I, I, maybe it's for a new part. Is strike rate the new thing? Because the, the era when I grew up with, or till now, I always looked at 
a bowler in terms of average. Fifers, tenfers, the ability to run through the sides and economy rate, especially for a spinner to control, right? But strike rate, if you use strike rate, you would say that Stain was definitely better than, you know, so many other bowlers, right? So that's an interesting, is that something evolving into, you need to get, you need to include strike rate more in a test match conversation, even for bowlers. It's something I'd like to ask because uh, that'll open up a, a new way of looking at cricket from a statistical perspective. As I said, we need to keep evolving. My my guerrilla cricket colleague, Anindar Dutta, who's written uh, a number of books, including uh, including one on Indian spin bowling, a wizard spin, which is very good. He wrote an article for us um, arguing that strike rate, bowling strike rates, I think he typically for him phrased it slightly hyperbolically of saying that, you know, strike rates is almost the new average and I wouldn't go quite that far. But bowling strike rates is important, particularly in an era where um, where keeping the runs down simply isn't as much of a problem because um you, you can afford to be more attacking if you're going to get more life out of the pitch or more life out of the ball or you've got a uh or you've got a stronger attack you can afford to be more attacking and therefore uh therefore the, the rate at which you take your wickets uh is it becomes much more um important than it might have been on a uh in a more batting friendly era where you do have to worry more about keeping the runs down um going back to so the, the, the South Africa-Australia counter-example, Shane Warne has ruined the perception of leg spin forever. Shane Warne was a freak uh, who... There aren't many wrist spinners in the history of the world who could be both an attacking and a defensive bowler. Uh, Warne was probably... And Kumble for a time at his peak, perhaps, and then, you know, maybe very... I, I'm not well-versed enough in... in uh, in you know the great the first great flying of leg spin in the twenties, uh, and then the and then the the Indian sides of the of the of the seventies to to make this uh, to make this argument, but so I can't quite bring those into account. But but, but Shane Warne was um, you know Shane Warne was a freak even against a very very good wrist spinner like Stuart McGill. Uh, Shane Warne had that extra thing which just Im- simply isn't replicable having peak Warren and peak mcgrath in an attack simply isn't replicable uh if that comes together you're 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 smiling uh and you've got to and you know you you can afford to be more aggressive and you take as much advantage of it as you can because um that doesn't for most people last very long australia got very lucky in the, in the sense that it it lasted for as long as it did with with Warren and mcgrath being incredible um both able to be attacking and defensive bowlers england in that we talked about england 2011 um the graham swan wasn't as much of a factor in the 2011 series because the seamers did most of the damage but graham swan was a huge part of that andy flower team because he could be both an attacking and a defensive spin bowler uh and he since he bridges the gap very nicely monty pinus are a very good um not quite a holding spinner something because he did take a lot of wickets but it was a very uh accurate bowler uh and, and someone who could be um, someone who could be relied upon to be very accurate, but he wasn't necessarily going to uh, to rip through a team on a flat pitch. Uh, Graham Swan had that ability to do both, uh, which is very, very rare. And um, I know Ostavos had to leave us now, but he mentioned about uh, about some spins being more effective. DRS is another thing to bring into account, where umpires have realised that actually, no, just because you're on the front foot as a batter doesn't mean you can't be given out LBW to a spinner. Uh, because we've actually looked at the looked at the consequences of being hit in uh, on the pad in that way, and oh, actually, turns out quite a lot of the time the ball will hit the stumps. 
so so that makes a massive difference uh, as well. I mean, Graham Graham Swan um, has, himself has said uh, it, it doesn't make him any lesser of a bowler uh, than than he was, but he his career coincided with the advent of DRS, uh, which, which was which was huge for him. It made facing him, which would have been difficult uh, at his best, even harder. Uh, God knows what it would have been like facing Anil Kumble with with uh, with DRS, um, for example, um, or you know Yasser or you know Yasser Shah, a similar who has a similar line of attack to Kumble in a in a pre DRS area where LBWs weren't quite so, uh, so weren't as well where bowlers were simply not credited with lots of wickets that they should have got. Uh, uh, frankly, you can tell I used to be a wrist spinner, um, so I think that making a counter argument based on sort of freak cases uh uh is a little bit a little bit dangerous i think we we for the most part i think we should be looking to to make those points of comparison against less exceptional cases um you know a, a really good team will of course find a way but there aren't there haven't been all that many of those you know the west indies attack of the uh of the 70s and 80s were able to be brilliant for years and years and years without a spinner not that's not replicable for most teams i'm looking if you're looking from a from a team building and team selection point of view i completely see the 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 argument that uh that it is important that your third and fourth seamer uh and your third and fourth bowler don't offer much of a drop-off so nakul i i if this is a viewpoint, I'm perfectly fine with that. But the reason why I get a little frustrated with some of the comments, even from some blue-ticked individuals, including statisticians, they, they keep on saying now, if this Indian side were to play uh, Mark Taylor or Steve Waugh's side from 97 to 2001, or even some of the West Indies sides of the 80s, they're saying this depth will help India to beat Australia. And the, the ironical part, the current Australian side in 2021, they're saying they'll beat Steve Waugh and... Uh, Mark Taylor's side. And that's where I have a problem because this depth is used to beat that side. The reason I brought up the South Africa versus Australia example, you acknowledge that Vaughan was a freak. We need to acknowledge that when you have a Vaughan and McGrath, both were excellent defensive and offensive bowlers. It gave the captains a thing. So you're ready to acknowledge that as an exception. I'd like the same thing to be extended when you put a hypothetical current Australian side versus the great, because Karthika data, data pretty much says the current Australian side is better than Mark Taylor and Steve was side. That That's completely bollocks. That, I, that's I, don't, I, don't, I don't wholly agree with, uh, I find Karthika a very interesting and at times frustrating Twitter Twitter follow. I don't, uh, I don't always follow him to the logical extremes, to the extremes of his arguments. And I think in this case, um, quite apart from the fact, I, I tend to find those questions kind of boring because they can never actually be properly answered. Um, and you're you're just going for uh, everyone's just kind of arg- arguing from whatever will make their existing uh, viewpoint uh, stronger. I don't take the the Kartikeya data data fundamentalist or data data fundamentalist um, argument that every ball is a unique event that has nothing outside of that ball um, uh, bearing on it. Um, yeah, no, I've, I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, that was that was very bizarre because I think he responded to someone saying that how Chateshwar Pujara was set up by a good uh, bowler, and his response is there is nothing called setting up. And try telling that to Shane Vaughan, who was a master of setting up players, or Glenn McGrath, right? So yeah, that's different. No, coming back to your point, see, as long as someone acknowledges, as you said, right, the 1980s, the 70s and 80s West Indies were a freak unit because 
without a spinner they they pretty much won a lot of things but they couldn't win even in the 80s because uh, mid to mid to late 80s they started to draw a lot of test matches but just didn't have enough to win without a spinner and the great australian sides from 97 or you know mark taylor's side till steve was 2002 they were freak unit because of these two great bowlers and a very strong batting lineup don't forget adam gilchrist right someone like adam well, a, a strong batting lineup who could not only score runs but score runs quickly enough that the fact that yes. they had four bowlers didn't matter as much because they had time to take the wickets and Correct. against and a time where you know south africa were a decent team but um but a lot of their great players were you know they weren't as good as the South Africa side of two thousand and nine or well, two thousand and twelve. That two thousand and twelve team that beat England and England was a really really good team, uh, and you know a lot of other teams. Pakistan was sort of on the on a downward curve. India weren't much to write home about. Um, I know that two thousand and one series, but uh, but really nine times you play that series again, uh, and in Australia will win it more often than not. England were um, in a transitional period. New Zealand were okay at home um west indies were in a transitional period uh very much and zimbabwe were probably zimbabwe are the only uh one of the rest of the teams who were who were obviously better then than they are now sri lanka i guess as well but even then they had uh they were very heavily reliant on a few players uh, well if you say so if, if you talk like transitions the great west indies side of 1980s right both Australia, Australia was never the same side from 1987, sorry, 1977, Packer till probably 1989 Ashes, right? They were always in transition and then two times uh, they had, uh, you know, players going to South Africa for Rebel Tours. England were in constant change. They're using 22 players. Chris Cowdery was the captain for a while, right, in 1988. So you could argue that the great West Indies side, after losing to New Zealand in 1970 and 80, they faced England and Australia who weren't great. India were not great. The only side that was strong was Pakistan. But they had three drawn series, including one at home. So, if you want to really poke holes in the greatness, you could say is the were the West Indies the greatest side because they faced two average sides, and the only good side that was Pakistan. They were able to play three one-one draws. So again, I mean, as I said, right? If you want to play that out, we can do that because there are people who say that the the great Australian sides of '97 to 2002 they never face any great bowling attacks. Look, I try to tend to disagree because Pakistan had a quite a good bowling attack in the in the mid '90s, still, uh, you know, early '90s, but the only difference is with the I, cooker I but a ball. Po- I suppose the point I was trying to make was more to to enhance how good that Australian side was, rather than uh, they they made quite good teams look very very average uh, True. for quite a few years. Though that, and then then they were they were good in the in the subsequent few years, and certainly almost unbeatable in one day cricket uh, from two thousand and three to. Uh, to 2008, nine or so, um, had this complete aura of dominance, and the, and the aura is part of it. As much as um, people look look to, as much as psychology is hard to um, um, quantify, that there the, 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 the was a sense where where Australia were able to to bully teams and do a lot, do some of the work of beating them before they went on the pitch. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think you remember the 2000 Hamilton test. I think 2000, yes, 2000 when Australia went to New Zealand. They were 62 for five or 62 for six. I don't exactly remember. Nobody on the field in in New Zealand, they believed they could roll over Australia for 100 or less than 100. And nobody in the Australian dressing room felt that they were going to lose the game. 
they still went on to win the game i think that was the aura i mean this is where it's getting harder right how do you measure aura right if you don't if you don't know how to measure aura because the problem the reason why i mean i'm a sucker for nostalgia as well as narrative but the moment i use aura i like to counter it with a slightly different point because some of the australians have said that we wear baggy green that gives us enormous power and nazar hussein once very cleverly countered it by to justin langer saying when you have worn and magra doesn't matter what they wear but you give the ball <laughs> to the line and somebody doesn't work that's why i have a problem with some of this narrative that uh, the fire in the babylon you know art, i mean documentary that was produced with the west indies with this oh, we were playing for the pride i mean i'm no way discounting racism in england in the 70s that's an absolutely proven thing but if you look at west indies they didn't do well because they were hurt by race relations they did well because lancashire league and the county cricket made them so good and then world series and uh, the the trainer right right they gave the finishing school for the west indies to become the fittest and the best side i mean if you want to extrapolate and then say that it was the race relations and the narrative be my guess but that's not factual well, these these things can't make average players good but they can push already good or even great players further up further to to excel themselves even uh even even more than they than they would have done and kind of create that uh sense of shared purpose oh, the the fitness training um compared to every other team of their era for that west indies team is obviously huge um absolutely fast bowling so difficult uh and doing it uh bowling at, uh, at any sort of pace uh, for any length of time is very very difficult the fact that they were always able to have um you know six fast bowlers at any one point in time able to to bowl 20 overs a day without dropping in pace um where no other team was able to and they were able to be very strong in the field as well um now every team trains like that yeah, yeah I, I think they're very no. sorry second oh. one point one point on that very good right very, the thing about west indies being a structured team same thing with brazilian football that right? people talk about our oh, brazilian football is all about you know samba football but even you look at the 1958 uh, the side that uh, won in um, sweden they had physical trainers masseuses and they had uh, they were technologically advanced even for nutrition back then in 1958 so great sides don't win because they had an aura i mean they don't win just because they had more flair or they had a grudge to play against because sometimes the system and structure fits in which we forget because of the 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 fast bowlers or the great uh, midfielders etc sorry sakib no i was just enjoying this and i wanted to add like when i spoke to simon lester who wrote the fire in babylon book after the documentary was made he was on the podcast and he gave few reasons you know why the team ascended but what you said also makes a lot of interesting points because you look at any sport Uh, the dominant player or dominant team is usually ahead of the curve and it's just not like like you said the narrative this is kicking in but there's also a lot of skill there's also a lot of planning there's also stuff that doesn't meet the common eye that goes on for that kind of a brilliant run and uh, and, and that point about norm. not that point about it not meeting the common eye is very important it's not easy to observe that stuff uh, and it's not easy to, it doesn't stick in the memory in the same way that that Tony Greg are going on TV and saying grovel does yeah or it doesn't <laughs> stick in the me- it doesn't stick in the memory it's not as easy to replay and capture in a single moment as i don't know shane warn going and having a conversation with ian healy about nothing and then bowling whichever pakistan player it was i forget basit ali through his legs Basitali. last yes. ball of last the day ball, last ball scg 9596 yeah and it later comes out that they were talking about whether they were going to have pizza or burger for dinner um, that's true <laughs> yeah 
Uh, no, no, I mean, Vijay is a library and, and Nakul, you had a really good point. But I, I, there's a point I wanted to get in there, which is not relevant, but I think you just said it like Tony Gregg, right? So in a larger point, I've done a lot of podcasts on how tennis commentary needs to change or has changed, but hasn't changed in the main networks the same. So who's telling the story when we were, we both are older than you. So when you're reading a day's play in a newspaper, if you didn't have live telecast, it was pretty much the monopoly of the writer who's on the ground or the broadcaster who's getting you the live telecast is their word is gospel. And a lot of the former players would say something. And now we live in an era when independent voices like all of us are learning a bit from here, a bit from there, little research here. And we are coming with our own analysis and say, you know what, this guy might have played hundred tests, but uh, an independent voice is also giving me a lot of refreshing dialogue on how the game needs to be discussed. And I think that's the beauty of it. But again, then there's the KD school of thought and uh, like Aftab said, it's just a pre, you know, it's still, uh, the technology is still forming. It's not fully there yet. So let me ask you this on a very Twitter kind of ending to the show. Uh, My way or the highway seems to be, you know, the norm in a lot of these even ticked accounts where, you know, a guy who comes up with a theory or, or you know, to back some data. And uh, of course, there's a lot of abuse. So I'm not saying, you know, Twitter doesn't have bad residents, but my way, the highway seems to be the norm. If you don't like my hypothesis, you know, go someplace else. And that's not how the dialogue should move forward. Um, so let's use this as the concluding remarks. I'll give you both two minutes each. It's already a two hour, 10 minute podcast. Great insights from both of you. But yeah, uh, Vijay, how do you feel about this? Um, so I think like it's a bit nuanced. Right? Let me give a slightly different answer. right? So when I watch cricket at home, I always have the TV commentary turned on. Because from a very young age, I learned a lot of cricket through insights from Ian Chappell, Jeff Boycott, uh, Richie Benner, and so forth, right? Because I haven't played cricket at any level. So my cognitive bias or my observations are mostly shaped by what the former players were telling on the field, right? You know, uh, you know, he's playing and missing, something's got to give. So my match awareness as, a, as, a, as, a, as an armchair critic or armchair fan or a couch potato has evolved based on what these former players were telling on the, on the field. Um, uh, sorry, on, on TV. But when I read reports, like I don't read every report like I used to in the 90s and 2000 when I was a crazy, crazy cricketer, right? A cricket fan, rather. Um, so an immediate match report was always about, okay, what I observed and uh, is that getting re- reflected? But the, the beauty is as time evolves, right? Like, for example, if I had watched a great test match in 2000 and I would have thought, okay, Craig White bowl like this, Caddick bowl of excellent second spell. So I would have some memories formed based on that. But as years evolve, some of these memories start to make the game better than what it was. Oh, no, no, because that'll get, you know, bigged up, if I could use the word bigged up, or it gets bigger as we go. But some of the games you realize, hang on, I saw a great game. But as time evolves, some of the other events have started to, uh, you know, get better than that. Therefore, you start to put that as, okay, it was a good event, but it wasn't that great. So this is how I evolve. And I'll give a slightly different point. Whenever I go to a game in Chennai, which I've done a few test matches or at the SCG here for the last 13 years, I don't wear the earplug radio, right? Which a lot of people wear both in England for Sky and other BBC TMS while over here for Channel 7, 9 or in ABC. I don't wear it. When I'm at the ground, I just focus on the game. I watch it on the big screen for replays, but I don't hear any commentary. But when I come home, I try to watch the replay. So the reason I'm giving it is, if you watch a game without being told by an expert in terms of what it does, you still watch it. You know, you watch, I mean, you watch from the behind the bowlers on whether the ball is swinging or cutting or seaming. You, you tend to see that some of them you can't without the replays. So your perception is completely different when you watch it 
on the ground without a commentary. And then when you come and read a report, it's completely different. The reason why I'm giving it, I think this is where, as we talked about, what we observe as a game in terms of the narrative or actual incident now versus the new ways of cricket analytics coming, saying that the ball, Crickwiz says, right, from 2006, uh, this morning it was 2.2% or whatever swing, which is the highest for between overs 10 and 20 at a 10 bridge test match. That's kind of a startling revelation, right? That kind of makes you challenge your own narrative or the way you've looked at it. Now, I don't read too many reports as I used to, but maybe I think I know a game a little bit more as, as I've got 20 plus years of experience of watching cricket. So what I'd like to say is the Twitter and the social media has really, really opened up um, uh, the level the field or made it a level playing field because as you rightly said there are analysts independent analysts like himanish and kartike data they write columns for cricket for challenging the existing narratives about there is no finisher there is no such thing etc so to me we are rich for the experience in terms of having multitude of views but unfortunately the polarized world of my way or the highway exists that's because the fandom, especially from the Indian subcontinent, I'm sorry to say this to my Indian friends because I've got an Indian background, but a lot of this, you know, fan-based thing as well as the victimhood has kind of made it a toxic place. But I don't see between an English and Australian or Australian and New Zealand, they have their own banter, they have their own cuss words, but it's not getting listed as toxic. So to me, still cricket is a good place. We still need the good field journalists for us to come and tell the story, but they're getting more and more at a premium for the simple reason that we have too much analysis available. Now, one point I'd like to say is commentary, right? Commentary, as I said, Channel 9 was the pretty much the uh, standard, gold standard in the uh, 80s and early 90s with uh, Richie Benno, Ian Chappell, Bill Laurie, Tony Greg, et cetera, et cetera, even Greg Chappell to some extent. Uh, BBC was always kind of, I mean, though we had Jack Bannister and you know Tony Lewis and uh, Christopher Martin Jenkins, et cetera, Jeff Boycott, but somehow, Channel 4, when they had it between 98 and 2001, they had some, sorry, 2001, they had some good, um, 98 and 2005, I should say, they had some good innovative ways of representing with some good panel. But right now, if I see, the cricket commentary has kind of gone down, except Sky. Sky is the only one, and that too, when you have Atherton, uh, Hussein, and to some extent, Ian Ward, and uh, depending on the other experts, right? Uh, Mark Butcher looks good. So my worry is if the cricket commentary, I mean, Australian commentary has become a cheerleaders club, right? With Channel 7 or Fox is horrendous with Vaughan and Mark Ward talking absolute you know, gibberish. So it's very important that we get the TV commentary, right? Because a lot of viewers, because more than anything, now more people are watching it on TV through OTT as well as, you know, streams, even in North America compared to the cricket and football by commentary. We need to up the game in terms of getting the, the right set of commentators who are going to give data-based, evidence-based, because Sky uses a lot of the quiz data, and I could see that headingly length and stuff. I really, really enjoyed some of the, the Sky commentary recently. So it's very important we up the game in terms of commentary. Otherwise, I think people will turn off and will go to... I mean, that's where I think the challenge is. Like, I, I believe... Uh, I've not heard a lot of the Cricket Gorilla radio, but I read a bit of, I, mean, I heard a bit of the SCN radio where I think Jared Kimber and others, the new set of broadcasters, broadcasters were giving some very, very interesting insights. So I think the broadcasters have uh, have to really, really find the right balance between finding the right commentators so that the uh, audience, whether on TV or through internet or through OTT platform, get the right view so that they don't move away or mute the TV channels. No, brilliant stuff. So uh, same thing to you, Nakul, before I give you the microphone. Uh, 
I just like to say, yeah, I mean, I have learned a lot from KD. Himanesh is actually a friend. I text a lot to Himanesh and I'm, it's not about these guys, but I think overall, uh, you know, you're teaching an old dog, new tricks, old dog being me. So the way I consume the game and I'm far less knowledgeable than most of my guests when it comes to cricket, because I follow cricket, not full time. I'm following mostly test series. So they have definitely given me new food for thought. How do I approach viewing the game and the statistical bent of mind is really, really intriguing. But there are days when I say, you know what? It's not making sense, even though I don't have the answer. And I think Vijay, your point is brilliant. Same thing when I go to the US Open, I'm not listening to the commentary because you are there to absorb the action. You're there courtside looking the fur of the ball, how a guy is thinking, how much time he's taking between points, you know, and you, 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 you don't want to compromise that, that experience by listening to commentary, then you better stay home and watch on your TV. So Nakul, what are your parting thoughts on this conversation? I learned quite a few things from all of you. And I think hopefully the listeners enjoy this discussion so you can have the closing remarks. Thank you, Sakib. Thank you for, for inviting me on the on, on the show. It's been a very interesting and edifying um, discussion done at mostly a, a pretty pretty high level or a pretty deep level depending on depending on how you want to how you want to look at it I, the the point about fans uh and and watchers reception being shaped by uh by the media and by commentators is is, is of course true and even more true now that um you know you're not you're not getting uh you're getting full games everywhere you're not you're not getting you know edited highlights packages coming through from last from last night's events in australia or you're not getting uh you know going away for the 310 from kempton park on the bbc or channel 4 uh, uh as you were uh back then everything is uh everything is there uh, i'm mostly i'm a radio commentator the job of the radio commentator is very different to that of the television commentator in some ways easier because you can you describe the action as it occurs in front of you in terms of what you have to say in terms of thinking of what to say that will add value it's not so it's not as uh, as difficult because you have it right there in front of you now of course then you have your analysts your experts and the certainly the way i think of it is that if you have an ex-cricketer who isn't a trained broadcaster they may have some broadcasting experience then and certainly it used to be the case that they would do a fair amount of training before they went on air but they're not they they've studied cricket and playing cricket is what they've they've learned how to do they've got to be tell they've got to tell the viewer or the listener something that even someone who watches a lot of cricket very closely but didn't play the game can't tell you now there's a lot of people out there who still do that particularly on radio commentaries we talked about sen um who, who've had some former former professionals as well um the bbc still do it pretty well um i can't speak for other countries uh, per se and i think sky do a very very good job with the skies uh the technical level of sky's uh cricket coverage in terms of telling you stuff that you wouldn't have access to otherwise even as a fairly uh switched on view of cricket is very good um i've been fairly impressed with new zealand cricket commentary when i've when i've seen it on, on tv super sport as as well uh, unfortunately the world's biggest cricket market india has commentators uh, who are contracted to the host board now that lack of editorial independence makes a huge difference in the fact that they select from a very from a still a fairly small pool of uh, of of people and of of person type if that makes any sense so you've got a fairly limited set of experiences australia's even worse for that in the fact that you will often have a lot of people who played not just at the same time but in the same teams with commentating with each other you'll have you basically have entire commentary crews of 
players who played in the late 90s slash early 2000s with a lone Isa Guha in there trying to keep some sort of semblance of order. Um, I felt quite sorry for her at times. Um, and, and another, um, or or Mark Nicholas or whoever it might be. Um, but so that, and I think, and I've seen this through uh, through guerrilla cricket, you know, I've done being involved with guerrilla cricket for the last seven years. We get a lot of people who come to us initially because they're frustrated by the fact by the the shallowness of some of the coverage uh in in wherever it might be and the fact that it doesn't tell them anything that they didn't that they didn't know and it doesn't it doesn't engage them in the in in the way that they that they want to be it becomes background which or or it becomes too um they, they get the sense that they're they're being sold to or whatever it might be or 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 cheerled as 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 such in uh, sorry as um as Vijay said um where you get the sense that the other team than the team is play who's playing at home are just there to make up the numbers which is certainly not how i like to watch cricket um and i think that cricket is a lot less uh i think it does well because it's a lot less partisan than a lot of other than certainly football um that that partisanship can make cricket twitter at times a pretty toxic place to be and every time something Every time something crops up, you know, every big three series between India, Australia and England has some sort of diplomatic incident in there somewhere um, because there's, you know, that the sense of with which cricket, how seriously cricket is taken has been weaponized by uh, by, by certain parts of, of cricket media and certain boards. Um, and the, how this process has happened exactly is a little murky. Uh, but, but, but even within that, even within everyone... Um, you know, saying, "Oh, England didn't really win the 2019 World Cup, or whatever it might be, or or pitches this, or doctoring that, or uh, James Anderson can only do it when he's cloudy, and all of this nonsense." Or people talking much more about imagined spats between captain and vice captain and coach than uh, than you know the the wonder of just breathe the boomer or or the the continued or how on earth James Anderson is better now than he was ten years ago, uh, or, or whatever it might be, or or the dip that Nathan Lyon gets on his off break, or even, or you know, to take a to take a non-test example, um, you know, the 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 Mumbai Indians dynasty that that is uh, uh, that has uh, ruled the IPL in the last in the last few years, and the the the, the fielding standards and the and the sheer weight of uh, of high quality hitting now, and the fact that uh, and all of this stuff and all of the factors that go into it, which is it is very possible to find discussion on that stuff, but it isn't. It doesn't come from the mainstream sources generally. Um, you have to look a little bit harder in in a lot of cases, or you'll certainly have to sift through a lot of nonsense when you go when you get to when you get to those alternative sources. Um, but it's still out there, and the fact that it's easier for people to put their stuff out there means that if you're if you're if you want to, you can find better quality information and insight and you can and hopefully to take it back to a point we were talking about at the start of this show um once the data becomes as the data rather becomes more and more available people will be able to look at it interrogate it and form their own conclusions and do so from a point of view of some kind of position of strength and hopefully uh the collective understanding of the of the um of the simplest the simple starting blocks that lead to incredibly complicated mechanics that is what keeps me and so many others interested in cricket uh, despite all um, um disincentives to do so given how 
Um, given how unequal it is as a sport, given how dominated by national interest it is as a sport, given how colonial it still is as a sport. But there's something about this game that, um, where, as I said earlier, every question opens up a few more questions. And it this idea of the game being reduced by, by greater knowledge and access to knowledge just doesn't, it doesn't wash for me um, at all. Um, so, and that is starting to be reflected in 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 some forms of broadcasting and i think we'll only get 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 more so that'll only happen uh happen more so but um but it but it needs to find its way to a to a greater audience uh, and and i'm um i'm very happy to be um to start to see some of that some through and i and i, I would love that process to accelerate Absolutely. Great closing remarks, both of you. And I would like to thank you both and Aftab for taking time out on these uh, challenging time zones. It's 1.36 a.m. where Vijay is in Sydney. So thank you both. And more importantly to the listeners, last podcast we did in the captaincy was uh, really good. I've listened to it myself twice. I usually don't do that because I also produce a tennis podcast. But the listenership is really increasing. And hopefully today we ask a lot of right questions through our remarks. And if it's food for thought, drop a line to all of us. We'll start a Twitter thread when this podcast is live sometime later today. Uh, I have to just attend family duties now, but I'll probably edit this monster of a file, which is, I think, two hours and 20 minutes. And when you both wake up, the show will be live. Vijay and uh, Nakul, thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you for giving us more opportunity by encouraging the hits that we keep doing these kind of discussions. And uh, yeah, it was a brilliant show. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sakib.